kill you. Yeah, what's wrong with the beer we got? and gentlemen and welcome to another edition of Auntie Nanny. As is traditional, we will start the show off with the CASA update portion of the program. Good evening and welcome to the CASA update for the week of 4-14-2017. Hi Alex, how are you this week? Good, how are you doing? Very well. So I really don't like asking this question. What's new and exciting this week, <laughs> Alex? <laughs> Well, um, we actually had uh, some some good news. Uh, hey. to, I guess I, well, I, whatever. We'll start with the good news and, and okay. with the whatever news. Um, <laughs> so the good news was at the beginning of the week, um, over the weekend, um, the New York uh, legislature and governor hashed out the details in the state's budget. Um, and, uh, for anybody who didn't catch the news earlier in the week, um, the vapor language was removed completely. So no indoor vape ban and no tax in the budget. But so I, you know, first of all, I, I I just want to say, you know, thank you to the New York state vapor association, um, I was in communication with them and, you know, coordinating on, um, you know, our engagements and, and getting, uh, you know, people to send emails and make phone calls. And um, they were very helpful. And of course, they're the ones that have the lobbyist in Albany. Um, and, uh, the, you know, they're the ones taking the time to, to drive to the Capitol and meet with lawmakers and um, get the intel, move the needle, you know, right. really, really doing the kind of uh, blood and sweat kind of work sure. um so thanks to their efforts and and everybody that you know everybody that pitched in by simply making a phone call um certainly helped um and we're likely i, I want to say likely i don't have a, a i don't have an over under on this but um right. it is entirely possible we're going to need that enthusiasm again um, I don't know when, but uh, it is possible to see it later on this year. Um, sure. So we're out of the budget, but there are, let's see, uh, eight other bills 
that and and I and I am actually just looking at indoor vaping legislation, tobacco okay. twenty one, and all out prohibition. Sure. Um, I actually let me see if we got pharmacy ban language. That's a that's a popular thing. Yes. Um, so uh, uh, let's see. I got no no bills in the pharmacy ban section. Um, that doesn't okay. mean it. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist yet. But um, so there are still bills that were introduced earlier this year um, in New York. Um, the prohibition one is sort of every year. This this comes up. I believe this is another. Um, this may be Campan, and I can't remember. He okay. he's introduced this in the past. Okay. Um, let's see. Nope. This is Linda Rosenthal. Oh God, um, yeah, yeah, everybody's she's, favorite. <laughs> she's she's a peach. Um, so this that's the assembly. I don't know if there's a Senate companion. Okay. Um, it doesn't look like there is. Um, but this is all stuff that was introduced in January and, and it really hasn't gone anywhere. New York is one of those states that stays in session a little bit longer. Right. Um, I think I think they go through August. They might go yeah. into September. I can't remember. Um, right. I get New York and New Jersey confused. I, New Jersey is in session year round. Right. Um, so uh, just, you know, whatever. <laughs> Um, apparently there aren't enough laws in New Jersey. Um, they love their law in New Jersey. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so anyway, all that suffice to say um, that, you know, there are still, uh, there's still tax bills. There are still indoor vaping ban bills. Right. Um, actually, I don't have, let me, let me just double check. I don't have vapor tax up here. Um, the taxes are usually things that come through the budget, but, right. um, uh, okay. I have six bills, <laughs> oh my six, six bills. Okay. Two of which were part of the budget. Right. And so the other four are just sort of standalone, okay. um, budget bills or three. What is it? I have six. I'm only seeing five. It doesn't matter. They're there. <laughs> okay. So, um, and this could be anything from, you know, like we, like what we saw in the budget, 10 cents per milliliter, all the way up to 40 cents per milliliter. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see a 40% wholesale type yeah. proposal, um, mimicking, uh, Pennsylvania. Um, so, uh, they exist and everybody in New York should be, you know, at least paying attention. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and we'll probably, you know, there, there may be another call for help um, okay. before the end of the session. <clears throat> and New York has carryover, I believe. So anything oh. introduced this year most likely oh. comes back next year. Oh, nice. Um, <laughs> at least you know what they're going to do. Yeah, I mean, at this point, you, you can pretty much just guess. I mean, there, there's a there's a short list of things that that states are going to look at to regulate um mm -hmm. and uh actually maryland is another part of the update that that uh maryland just passed a um kind of a license it's a licensing bill okay and it, there was some there is some speculation about whether or not it is also an online sales ban um okay. and this this was a question that i had asked several people and and there was some i think some debate over whether or not 
it was actually in there, but um, right. I do know that the Maryland Vapor Association, um, uh, you know, worked hard. They had a lobbyist, and and there was a there was several changes in the language, um, and kind of at the last minute, it looked like this thing was going to fail. But um, overnight, uh, earlier in the week, it it ended up passing. Um, so I guess it's headed to the governor's desk for signature. Um, and there's also speculation that this might trigger a lawsuit because. Um, uh, I, I don't know if this is a dormant commerce clause thing. Uh, I'm not a lawyer, so I, I shouldn't try to speak with any authority on what this involves. But um, it it may it may affect interstate trade and um, yeah, trigger something constitutional. So um, it it it's there, and and it, it's I, I, I've. I've griped about this in the past. This this particular bill is very difficult to read. I mean, is it physically difficult to read because they write out um, uh, electronic nicotine delivery device or electronic nicotine delivery system every mm -hmm. time they reference, you know, what a, a normal human being would say, a vape shop or a vapor distributor or, you know, a vapor right. product it it's always electronic nicotine delivery system and so having to read that i can't remember if it was like 130 times in a bill is is actually physically exhausting so right. um kudos maryland for writing one of the most horrible bills ever on many <laughs> levels um so yeah uh that was that was was it, was it as bad as the oregon bill um, the Oregon bill. But there was an Oregon bill last year, you were saying it was so hard to read? Oh, no, that was the one, the Oregon bill that had um, inhalant delivery systems, mm -hmm. which yeah. is the most, like, is the worst way, the one, <laughs> I think, the worst description of these products ever. Sure. Um, no, that that bill is is relatively easy to read by comparison, but it has yeah. such a horrible name. Um, so different prizes for different horribleness, um, <laughs> goes to Oregon and Maryland. Um, yeah. So, uh, that was in, in Maryland, that was, uh, I believe house bill 523. Okay. Um, and, uh, it, it, it's not, I mean, it's not over yet. Mm -hmm. Um, it, but it did pass through both houses of of the legislature um so um i guess we did kind of start with the bad news um <laughs> <laughs> um moving right along uh alaska is looking at uh senate bill 63 and there was a hearing um was it yesterday Might have been. or wednesday today's friday Right. I, it doesn't matter. It was this week, mm -hmm. and um, the, the uh, SB sixty three is an expansion of the state's smoking law. Right. Um, and I, I, I hope I'm going to explain this correctly. Alaska does have a smoking law, right. but it's kind of on the weaker side if you want to describe it that way okay. um or maybe it's on it's on the more it's on the liberty side if you would like that explanation better okay. um in that it allows certain public 
um, spaces, certain businesses to allow for a smoking section. Okay. Um, and it, it outright prohibits smoking in certain places, but in other places you can have, you can still have a smoking section. It is not a comprehensive smoking ban like mm -hmm. the body parts groups would like to see. Um, <laughs> however, there are, I want to say 10, maybe a dozen municipalities, cities mm -hmm. uh, in Alaska that do have an, an, a workplace smoking ban in effect. Okay. Um, but the way that the current law is written, you know, unincorporated areas of Alaska, which there's a lot of mm -hmm. unincorporated area of Alaska, right. um, uh, does not have a... a a workplace smoking ban. So um, advocates have been trying to get that beefed up. And this is like, the I'm sure they've been at this for more than a couple of years, but um, I know that the last session we were looking at um, House and Assembly bills that, um, I'm sorry, Senate and Assembly bills that I think it was like HB 40 and SB 1, something like that, right. um, that would, you know, do, do just this it would treat vaping like smoking one of them did and uh it would make the the smoking ban sort of all-encompassing um and so it's back this year as sb 63 okay. and they built into the law a an, an exemption for vapor shops and i believe smoke shops cigar shops something like that um but it's kind of crappy and it you know it requires a um uh, it, it it again it still treats vaping like smoking in that it requires uh you know an air filtration system um and uh it, there's language in there about you know the difference between a standalone building and something that's attached to other businesses um and uh the the actually the smoking definition most smoking definitions give you the the normal you know human definition of what smoking <laughs> is at the beginning of the sentence mm -hmm. uh, and then sort of casually carelessly lumps in vaping by the end of the sentence right um this actually starts with <laughs> <laughs> The, the smoking is the use of an electronic cigarette and then goes on to describe combustion, um, it, wow. which is kind of bizarre. I, I, I take note of that. But um, so anyway, there was a hearing this week in mm -hmm. the community. Um, oh, it's CRA is the, the abbreviation. It's like the community and relations or something. Okay. Um, uh Association? Community relations? No. no. Okay. I should just look at our call to action on this, shouldn't <laughs> I? I write all this stuff. I should be able to recall it pretty easily from my brain. Uh, Community and Regional Affairs Committee. Okay. Um, so uh, the committee met, and they apparently had something like 46 people signed up to present testimony nice. and there's a limited amount of time that a committee has. So um, instead of just telling everybody to piss up a rope, they <laughs> um, actually held the bill in committee and will be reconvening 
on April 18th, okay. which I believe is this coming Tuesday. Yeah, this coming Tuesday at eight o'clock in the morning, the most convenient time for everybody everywhere. Um, I don't know. I mean, yeah, 8 a.m. is they've, a stupid... They've always done that, though, you know, it, because apparently anybody who might object would not have a job. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that seems like a very, that's an early, that's, that's, that's an unusually early time for government to get started. So, um, but uh, yeah, 8 a.m. Um, and it's in the same place, Barnes 124. Uh, it will be teleconferenced. If you're in Alaska, you can visit your LIO, the Legislative Information Office. Okay. Um, and, uh, and I also believe they allow people to just call in. Nice. Um, but the thing I am not clear on is if they are accepting more people to sign up to testify or right. if they're just going off of the list that they got for this week's hearing. Okay. I assume I assume that a lot of the people that are signed up are probably in opposition. This is not a popular bill. Right. A lot of the, the, and there was no uh, support of vapor uh, testimony given at this week's committee hearing. It doesn't mean it's not a, it's not on the list, but um, I didn't hear any. They only had time for maybe half a dozen people. Um, but um, I I would strongly recommend anybody actually uh, yeah. listen to mm -hmm. the committee hearing. I actually shared this with some other people today. Um, at actually at the playback bar on the bottom it's 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 actually pretty well presented as far as um committee hearings go that we've seen from other states okay. at 9 23 a.m on the playback bar um okay. uh let's see jay butler he is the chief medical officer of the department of health and social services Okay. Um, he begins to testify and he, he's got kind of an interesting backstory. Actually, he's the son of a tobacco farmer, um, uh, former smoker. I can't remember if he said cancer survivor. Um, but, uh, so, you know, he, he has a history with, with, with cigarettes and, and tobacco and, um, he actually made some comments about vaping that I think are interesting and useful and people need to be aware of. Okay. Um, and I haven't heard a whole lot of this in testimony yet, um, but it's coming. And okay. he goes after the Royal College of Physicians report and he, he doesn't do it cool. in a stupid way. Um, he, he has some, some very intelligent sounding criticisms of the report. And I think it's useful for people to, um, to understand that. Yep. And uh, he sort of gets into, you know, how did they come up with 95%? Um, and, and a lot of people don't, um, I, I, I know a lot of people probably don't appreciate this analysis, but um, the 95% number is partly political. There's no, there's, it's, it's somewhat arbitrary. Mm -hmm. um, it was a number that public health people can swallow. If you say 98 to 99%, People look at you like you're, you know, selling them snake oil. Obviously. Well, right, um, but I mean, those those numbers would actually be accurate with like snus. That's right. proof of concept for vaping. And, you know, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, and I I don't want to harp on this. I mean, I understand why that number was 
um, you know, chosen basically. Right. It, it is it is a much more marketable number, mm-hmm. um, but you know, it it is not actually accurate. And the the way that that people need to understand, you know, the, the way that you talk about it is what the Royal College of Physicians said is that these products are not likely to exceed five percent of the risk of traditional cigarettes. That's right. That's the more appropriate way to talk about it. But mm-hmm. when people talk about it, they say, oh, they're 95% less harmful than smoking. That's, right. partial, that's partially true. Mm-hmm. Um, but he gets into kind of how this, it sounds like a committee of seven people or so decided that this was the number. And, and they, this same group of people actually came together and decided that, um, you know, cigar smoking was 78% less harmful than smoking. Smoking a pipe was 80% less harmful than smoking, something right. like that. Um, and so it, it was, I think, an effective, um, I think it was an effective way of sort of questioning the credibility of the Royal College of Physicians report. If you put yourself in the shoes of somebody sitting on a committee and hearing this somewhat credible argument from a, a doctor, um, and, and, and so I think it's worth people listening to this testimony so that they can prepare themselves for these arguments, um, no matter how, you know, credible they actually are. Uh, right. it, it's just good to be prepared for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, and I, I'll, I will give you that link, Jan, okay. so that you can put that in our thing. Okay. Um, yeah. um, so yeah, that's Alaska. I need to send out an email tonight to people in Alaska so that they can be prepared for the committee hearing next okay. week. Um, but yeah, this bill is, uh, it's, it's on the move. You know, I, I, I don't know much about the, the politics and culture of Alaska. It, to me, it's, it's Alaska strikes me as a very um, liberty oriented state. I mean, right. you're living all the way out there in Alaska. I mean, mm-hmm. If there, if there was a state that was sort of, you know, listen, man, leave me alone. Right. Um, <laughs> Alaska is <laughs> one of the, the first, you know, wide right. open wilderness kind of states I think of um, other than a lot of the center of the country. But um, so I, 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 again, I just, you know, I don't, it, this has been years in the making there's still a good chance that this passes. So um, anyway. Um, we not. will continue, um, yeah. continue sending messages and, and trying to generate some phone calls. Okay. Um, so that is Alaska. Um, and the other thing is, and, and I, I know that the Margo is on mute, but I did want to bring this up because we did start talking about tobacco 21. Okay. Um, and, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to get too far into the weeds on this, but um, Joplin, Missouri oh. is, is looking at tobacco 21. And this is, this is kind of a, this is a thing. This is the, the tobacco 21 cancer that's spreading around Kansas and Missouri. Um, <clears throat> and I know I'm saying Missouri wrong. I'm not from Missouri, so I'm going to butcher it and say it like a person who lives in the Northeast. Um, Missouri, isn't it? Missouri. Um, I'm not from there. I'm not going to pretend to be from there. Um, (laughs) um, so Joplin, Missouri, um, and this is, it's, there's no, there's no ordinance introduced yet. There's no, there's nothing on the committee, but this is one of those instances where 
uh, and and actually, as far as I understand it, Margot spotted this on the local news. Um, they have a group there called uh, Vision Vision Joplin 2022, okay. and this is one of their initiatives that they have put out there. Um, and this will be um, precipitated by an attempt to prohibit indoor use. Of course. So, um, folks in, in Joplin and, and Missouri, um, I think are, are aware or getting aware and, um, there's going to be an effort for people to make contact with city council members and, um, I think try to get some information in front of them. Um, and, and I will just say it again because it bears repeating the support for tobacco 21 is tenuous at best. Um, they, their reference is one town, Needham, Massachusetts, uh -huh. uh, and um, some other, you know, some, some computer modeling from the Institutes of Medicine that did not consider the availability of electronic cigarettes. Right. Uh, there's been no data that's come out of Hawaii, which is literally an island and mm -hmm. is, the, is the first state to adopt Tobacco 21. Um, and I would be curious to see if that has made a uh, significant difference in the smoking rates among young people there. Right. Um, so... Um, this is one of those instances where I think, you know, at least vapor advocates have the opportunity to say, we don't know. We, we don't know. And we have studies to back up our, our claim that this law may actually be harmful. Yeah. Um, and uh, there, there's more than one study now um, looking at strictly enforcing bans on sales of vapor products to minors, yeah. actually increasing smoking rates among young people. Yep. Um, so, uh, there's some important information and I'm sure some very uncomfortable information for people, but, um, you know, science doesn't care. Right. Very true. So, um, I just wanted to put that out there cause there will be more on that later. I'm sure we're not putting out a massive call to action at this point. Um, I think, you know, people that are there should take some time to get to know their city counselors and, um, yeah. and, and take their temperature and, you know start a dialogue um uh, i feel like I, I thought of something while i was ranting and raving about tobacco 21 um well, tobacco 21 is kind of a big deal it's um it's like you said last year it was going to be the new dance craze and it really has been it's everywhere yeah, it's really blown up this year i mean it's i i think at the very beginning in january i had 13 or 14 bills in mm -hmm. like 10 states. Right. Um, I, I actually did catch a bit of a Facebook conversation about Oregon. Right. Um, and I know that when I was out there earlier this year, mm -hmm. um, there was this, this kind of idea was floated that, um, you know, hey guys, would you be willing to roll over on Tobacco 21 in order to avoid attacks? Um, and to which I responded, no, that no, That's crazy. you shouldn't, you shouldn't because tobacco 21 is a bad policy. Right. They shouldn't be, you know, nobody should be bargaining with that. No, you um, give them an inch, they'll take a mile. And I mean, it's really not even, it's not even that it's just that I, you know, I kind of believe that, you know, this is, I mean, Kassad agrees that this is a bad Paul. I don't think this, we don't think this actually will improve public health 
I mean, you're, you're, there's, there's several things at work here. You're one on one hand, you're communicating to people that vapor products are just as dangerous as smoking. On the other hand, you're, you're neglecting and basically turning a, a, a group of adults into criminals for, you know, depending on how your state's tobacco laws are. If you're 18 years old and you, you know, are caught with a vapor product, yeah. you know, you could be facing, you know, penalties, whatever. Um, and Fines, community uh, service, yeah. re-education, whatever, you know. Um, so it, it's, you know, it's not fair. And these are adults who, you know, one of the things that sort of escapes me is how, I guess it really, it doesn't surprise me. It just it, it a little bit kind of baffles me that people don't really understand that cigarettes are sold practically everywhere. I mean, I, you know, I live in a, in a very densely populated city. So, I mean, I can, within a quarter mile, I, there's probably half a dozen or more little grocery stores, little bodegas that sell cigarettes. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I live across the street from a middle school. So, <laughs> you know, and these are kids and, and, you know, when the kids get out of school, whatever, they're walking into these bodegas, they're getting their snacks, they're socializing with their friends and right there behind the counter are cigarettes. And, it, and it's, it's cigarettes they don't, they don't sell vape products. They don't sell, you know, other stuff. It's, it's, you know, it's where cigarettes are traditionally sold. Right. So, you know, and there's like maybe three vapor shops in, in my city. It's, it's not, it's right. not a huge thing around here. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, what are those 18 to 21 year olds? What's their default going to be? Hmm, it's probably going to be cigarettes. It's probably going to be the products that they are exposed to the most so you know again you know you've delayed um initiation if you Mm want to say that um until 18 maybe right and you know those 18 year olds are still probably going to sell to 15 year olds i mean it's just that's just how it happens if if the demand is there people will find a way to get it well, anything um, you make illegal makes a beautifully burgeoning black market. And anything on the black slash gray market, there, there's no regulation at all. Nobody's going to check your age. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm sure that there's some some data. Also, you know, somebody's got to have a study out there or somebody needs to run a study at some point. Is that if you want kids to not try electronic cigarettes Mm -hmm. then you really should market them as safer alternatives to smoking you should market them as as things that can help you stop smoking it'll be it'll be a craze for a couple of years and the kids will be like this is the geekiest thing i've ever done (laughs) this is so vanilla i'm Mm -hmm. just i need to find something dangerous to do that's (laughs) that's what will run through kids minds um, I don't care, you know, if you think that gummy bear and Fruit Loops is the most attractive thing on the planet to a teenager, um, <laughs> I, you, you, no. might, you might forget what it's like to be a teenager. Um, <laughs> I, I liked some pretty horrible stuff when I was a kid. I still like some pretty horrible stuff. You should, you should listen to my, well, you and I agree on some musical stuff, but, yeah, we um, <laughs> you know, the, the music I listen to is, is whatever yeah anywho um <laughs> so i've gone way off the rails here That's okay. um, 
that's what I get for having an extra dose of caffeine. Um, so anyway, um, yeah, tobacco 21 is a disaster and, and I, I just, whatever, I hope that people come to their senses about this and, and, you know, probably the most telling thing about, I, I I think one of the most important points that gets lost in all of this and all the frothy emotion about Liberty and the children and all this stuff is that, you know, the, the vapor products are being lumped into this policy with no credible recommendation for why. Right. Uh, this this study was done based on smoking. It wasn't mm -hmm. based on people using smokeless tobacco. It wasn't done based on the availability of electronic cigarettes. It just right. doesn't consider any of that stuff. Um, no. So it's it's it, it's it's incomplete. It does it does its usual U-turn in the middle of logic and just goes somewhere else. It's kind of funny. Yeah. The way some of those studies run. Um, so. It's like, it's like you're standing on one side of the lake and you know that you've got to get to a point that's across the lake. Mm -hmm. And instead of taking the, the road that you mm -hmm. know exists, there is a path to get to that point. Mm -hmm. You plot your course across the lake and say, that's the only way to get there. That's the most appropriate way to get there. And you don't have a boat. So... <laughs> you know, you have to swim maybe <laughs> i don't know or or you're not doing the swimming you're telling somebody else that's the way that you have to go take your shoes off and swim or walk you have to walk across the lake that's what's going to happen that's tobacco 21 yeah <clears throat> truth. Um, truth there's a lot of truth in that statement it's kind of infuriating when you look at the the bad lawmaking that's bad lawmaking and that's just my opinion you know i agree it and it's 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 based on emotion it's all politics it's not um it just really isn't considering you know it, it just and there are lawmakers out there i think who you know they they require some scientific justification for this. They, mm -hmm. they require some financial justification for these laws. Right. And there are others, I think, that are just, it's, it's a human nature thing. I think that a lot of people out there, I, I think a vast majority of the population is really not able to separate that, not really not able to identify and separate themselves from that emotional appeal of certain arguments and statements. And, um, and, and there's really good work on there, you know, out in the world mm -hmm. about, you know, how our brains function and how we interpret the world around us and, and so on. And I, I keep referring back to this thing with a podcast that I listened to, um, back in January, February. Um, and I don't know if I'm, if I'm, whatever, it's called the, you are not so smart podcast. Okay. And, and he, he spent all last year, like looking at logical fallacies and a lot of this is leading up to a book he's putting out, but you know, one of the things that, that he looked at was oftentimes the, the the first account of something that you hear is your your mind is, is sort of tainted with that for the rest right. of the thing. Even when you receive an update later on, yeah. mm -hmm. you're still relying on that initial report. And, sure. you know, this is where this is why fake news has affected everybody so deeply. Um, this is and this is why, you know, we a lot of people's, you know, deeply held beliefs are rooted in things that they heard, you know, when we were younger or just the first time we heard them, it's just stuck with us for the rest of our lives. Um, I'm trying to think of something funny that I have, I have believed my entire life that, 
um, recently required some effort to update, but I, nothing's coming to mind. Um, but I, I know I have some that are just, they're kind of ridiculous. Um, <clears throat> so. Um, oh, I know one. I used to think the government cared about people and not money. <laughs> <laughs> I, I required a, a major cognitive shift in my thinking once I started vaping. And uh, that happened, but uh, it wasn't easy. Because I would tell myself, oh, sure, you know, these are just certain legislature, legislators, everybody else just, they, they want their people to be healthy and happy and a little bit, maybe wealthier, not taxed so heavily. Yeah, they care about us. Mm, yeah. So I, I had a major cognitive re reconditioning <laughs> there. <laughs> I don't think I did. I, when I was in my, when I was a teenager, actually, and I started listening to punk rock and, you know, looking at the world slightly differently. Um right. I think I realized very early on that that human beings are basically just, you know, to to policymakers and and, and regulators mm -hmm. and a lot of uh, a lot of business people out there. We're really just bags of meat with money in our hands. I mean, it's well, not. I mean, <laughs> you know, that, I mean that's no, it, it's true. And and the thing is, like, I was raised kind of a, a Democrat. Yeah, I listened to Scott. I listened to punk. It took a really long time before I started listening to the words. Yeah. Once you really listen to it, it's it's life changing. But yeah, no, I, I yeah, that was me. Yeah. So. so yes. Um. One last thing. Okay. I'm just, I'm just gonna abruptly end that line of conversation and go on to the final point because we're okay. about a half an hour here. Um, but uh, so. I, I need to start this by saying that urging your Congress members to support the Cole Bishop Amendment in the 2017 U.S. budget is absolutely vital. If you have not taken action already, go to august8th.org and take action. Um, also, uh, Congress is on break, so a lot of lawmakers are back in their districts. You can go, if you Google the town hall project, mm -hmm. this is a site that was put together um, and it, it lists, uh, it, it doesn't have everything, but it's got a lot of uh, town hall meetings that your lawmakers are going to be holding. Some of them are a lot of them. It looks like a lot of state um, lawmakers are, are having town hall meetings, but um, a lot of people's U.S. Congress members are having town hall meetings nice. this, this coming week. Um, and, and to that, I would add, you know, make sure that you get on your legislators mailing list. Mm -hmm. They yes. don't, they don't spam you. And this is like, this is an email. I think that we should all kind of want to get, you know, when you, it, it it's kind of interesting. I subscribed to, um, Paul Ryan's email, the speak the speaker of the house email. Okay. And oftentimes you get the news before it's reported. Yeah, I, I've always appreciated that. I used, I actually, I used to, I used to listen to a police scanner when I was a yeah. pizza, when I was a pizza delivery driver, right. and I would hear all of this stuff. I heard stuff that happened that never made it to the news, but it oh, was, yeah. it was big. I mean, it wasn't, you know, it just, it didn't get reported. Mm -hmm. um, so there are things that happen in your district and things that your lawmaker does that are important to be aware of, but. Sure. They don't make it 
to the national news. They don't make it to your local news. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, town hall meetings are kind of one of those things. Um, you know, the, the news at six is not going to report on everybody's um, representative and when they're going to be having a town hall. It would take an entire news broadcast and that just doesn't sell pizza rolls. So um, it seems like a, but it seems like a good like C-SPAN two project or C-SPAN three project. Yeah. Sorry. I don't know. No, that's, but nobody watches C-SPAN because they don't sell, they don't sell pizza rolls there. Um, I, I like C-SPAN, but that's <laughs> besides the point. Go ahead. It is good. Yeah. If you ever want to watch Law Get Made, um, C-SPAN has it. Um, and then some interesting interviews and conversations. Um, so I'm anyway, sure that's. Book review is great. Go ahead. Um, no, 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 uh, the, the, uh, so anyway, that, that is, um, something that people should be aware of and I'll, I will send out an email, um, okay. again, you know, with people's local, you know, the district contact information and, uh, reminding people that, you know, town halls are a good way to ask that question. And the question is, uh, what's, it's very, it's, it's simply, you know, briefly your, your experience with vaping and, will you support the Cole Bishop amendment in, in the fiscal year 2017 budget? Um, and, and that's, that's, you have to ask a question. You can't just get up. I mean, you can get up and just shout things at them. That's what's been happening, but oh it's, it's better if you have a clear message and question, a right. clear, it's like jeopardy phrase your answer in the form of a question. Of a question. Um, so uh, again, just to reiterate, Cole Bishop Amendment, still a thing. Absolutely. We're pushing for this. This right. budget is going to get decided in the next few weeks. Mm -hmm. um, and and we, need, we need this predicate day change yes. to stay in there. Now, yeah. I mentioned that first because I'm going to mention a different thing, okay. which is letters to HHS Secretary Tom Price, right. um, which we put out. Um, pretty early, I think before we found out that, that the Cole Bishop amendment was, um, going to be considered for the budget. Right. Um, but this is still a thing and we need to be able to have a fallback plan. Mm -hmm. Um, we, we always, we always gotta be, you know, looking forward. What's the next opportunity? What's the next angle of attack here? Right. And so urging HHS Secretary Tom Price to delay implementation of the, the deeming regulations mm -hmm. is absolutely something that, that we need to um, continue working up the ask for. Okay. Um, and so earlier this week, I sent out an email to all of our members mm -hmm. um, uh, with a, uh, a, a link to <clears throat> it's, it's an industry letter. It's a letter okay. that was, that was, you know, written by the, all, all the trade associations had a hand in this. Mm -hmm. I, you know, we actually offered help, you know, with some editing on the letter um, mm -hmm. just because we're helpful and we like to do that sort of thing. Um, and it, it, it basically asks Tom Price for this delay. Right. Uh, and we're asking businesses to add their name to this. And you've seen, you've probably seen this, this particular engagement come out from, from VTA. Right. Um, I, I, the AVA actually mm -hmm. put it out as well. And uh, there was something out through the right to vape tour, um, right. which has a tie into Americans for tax reform. Um, so all the groups have sort of put this out and, and CASA, you know, we, we have a rather large um, 
membership list and right. acknowledging that a lot of our members are small mom and pop shops and mm -hmm. um, small to medium businesses. We're right. sending this out to everybody. And, and there's, there's a, there's, there's an opportunity for our consumer members to participate as well in that you can go to your local shop and say, Hey, you, you should add your name to this letter. Right. You know, the, the claim is that there are well over 10,000 businesses in the United States that mm -hmm. are going to be severely impacted uh, put out of sure. business by the mm -hmm. deeming regulations sure. i would love to have those ten thousand businesses add their name to this letter um and this is actually going to be delivered to hhs secretary tom price yes. um and so uh that's important and i'll, I'll send i'm not so everybody's aware because the cole bishop amendment is the thing that we need to be focusing on right now i'm not out there mm -hmm. pushing this i just want you know people should know that that we also have other irons in the fire and, sure. and that, that this ask of Secretary Tom Price is, is something that um, right. is, is worth people, I think, participating in. So, but yeah. again, the focus is on getting the predicate date changed through the Cole Bishop Amendment. And sure. um, hopefully, hopefully we have uh, news, actual news about that in the, in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, but for Good now, news. it's still... For now, it's still, there's this, you know, there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes of, you know, right. trying to get information in front of the lawmakers that need it and, and convince them that this is something they need to support. Yeah. 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 <sighs> so <laughs> that was a lot of stuff to go through this week, Alex. It was. It felt like kind of a slow, slow week, but um, now there's a lot going on. <laughs> yeah, when you when you look back on it, it doesn't seem slow at all, does it? <laughs> no, maybe I'm just getting used to it. I'm I'm like the it's like boiling a frog. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. Well, if that's it for this week, Alex, I'll let you go eat or go rest or maybe play Star Wars or something. Yeah, I'm gonna go try to forget about vaping for a couple hours and then all get right. back to it. <laughs> okay. Have a great night, Alex, and thank you for everything you do for us. And we will see you next Monday if you're not on a plane somewhere. Oh, uh, next I would Friday. Next Friday. Yeah, next Friday. I would suggest yeah. not flying United. I don't. Yeah. I don't. And um Yeah. And yeah, but I mean I typically my 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 schedule's pretty flexible so i just need to remember to push them for that thirteen hundred dollars <laughs> actually actually you know that's that's the thing you could probably start a business if you just really if you had enough people and invested in those first couple of tickets you could just have people fly the really congested routes and just make money even on a slow day you'd make me maybe four eight hundred dollars on a hotel stay i don't know doesn't seem like a bad gig <laughs> <laughs> until you until you get punched in the face yeah until you need reconstructive surgery and then all your past gets dragged down on your local news but hey yeah <laughs> all right well we will <laughs> <laughs> on that, that note on that note i'll see you next week alex have a great night thank you right. for everything thanks Bye. Thank you. You can catch Kasada's podcasts at kasada.org or on our SoundCloud feed, or you can go directly to iTunes and catch the Kasada podcast on iTunes and just hit subscribe and you'll get it as soon as it goes up, which is generally the night it happens. Um, 
Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Antimon portion of the show. <laughs> We're in for a fun one this week. <laughs> um, We're going to talk technology. We always talk technology, but not quite like this. Uh, with me tonight is the wonderful Miss Margot Gardner. How are you this evening, Ms. Margot? A nightmare material for the next week. How about yourself? Uh, I've been looking at this stuff for years. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, awesome. I'm doing great. And my the very best producer that money can't buy, which is good because I'm still not paying him. Barry, how are you this evening? <laughs> Well, I'm good. It's, you're good. <laughs> so cyborg Barry is joining us this evening, ladies That's and gentlemen. That's R2D2. No cyborg about it. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, so, does anybody like anything in the document, or does anybody? And you and I talked about this, Barry. I think we can explain what the singularity is that the singularity is the theory that eventually it was it was borrowed from physics to explain an event horizon that we don't yet know what it will look like so the singularity in this instance is the technological singularity and that is the point where machines actually become smarter than the average person um is that about the does that seem like an accurate definition to everybody to start with? Yeah. Reasonable, yeah. Okay. So, on that happy note, does anybody like anything in the document at all? Or should I just pick no. something? The dark no. secret AI. Okay. Um, Let's start with a nice one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Margo wants to start with a nice one, and there's other ones that are just plain fucking scary. Um... And they're scary to me. And I love technology. I do. I love technology in ways that I can't explain to you. But it scares the shit out of me. Okay. So, this piece is called The Dark Secret Heart of AI. Last year, a strange self-driving car was released onto the quiet roads of Mammoth County, New Jersey. The experimental vehicle developed by researchers at the chipmaker NVIDIA didn't look different from other autonomous cars, but it was unlike anything demonstrated by Google, Tesla, or General Motors, and it showed the rising power of artificial intelligence. The car didn't follow a single instruction provided by an engineer or programmer. Instead, it relied on an algorithm that it taught itself, that it taught itself to drive by watching a human do it. Getting a car to drive this way was an impressive feat. But it's also a bit unsettling, since it isn't completely clear how the car makes its decisions. Information from the vehicle sensors goes straight to a huge network of artificial neurons that process the data and then deliver the commands required to operate the steering wheel, the brakes, and the other systems. And the result seems to match the responses you'd expect from a human driver. But what if one day it did something unexpected, crashed into a tree or sat at a green light? As things stand now, it might be difficult to find out why. The system is so complicated that even the engineers who designed it may struggle to isolate the reason for any single action. And you can't ask it. There is no obvious way to design such a system so that it could always explain why it did what it did. The mysterious mind of this vehicle points to a looming issue with artificial intelligence. The car's underlying AI technology, known as deep learning, has proved very powerful at solving problems. 
in recent years, it has been widely deployed for tasks like image captioning, voice recognition, and language translation. There's now hope that the same techniques will be able to diagnose deadly diseases, make million-dollar trading decisions, and do countless other things to transform whole industries. But this won't happen, or it shouldn't happen, unless we find ways of making techniques like deep learning more understandable to their creators and accountable to their users. Otherwise, it will be hard to predict when failures might occur, and it's inevitable they will. The one reason NVIDIA's car is still experimental. Already, mathematical models are being used to help determine who makes parole, who's approved for a loan, and who gets hired for a job. If you can get access to these mathematical models, it would be possible to understand their reasoning. But banks, the military, employers, and others are now turning their attention to more complex machine learning approaches that can make automated decision-making altogether inscrutable. Deep learning, the most common of these approaches, represents a fundamentally different way to program computers. It's a problem that is already relevant and is going to be much more relevant in the future, says Tommy Jacola, a professor at MIT who works on the applications of machine learning. Whether it's an investment decision, a medical decision, or maybe a military decision, you don't want to just rely on a black box method. There's already an argument about being able to integrate AI system about, okay, how to interrogate an AI system about how it reaches conclusions. It's a fundamental legal right. Starting in the summer of 2018, the European Union may require that companies be able to give users an explanation for decisions that automated systems reach. This might be impossible, even for systems that seem relatively simple on the surface, such as the apps and websites that use deep learning to serve ads or recommend songs. The computers that run those services have programmed themselves, and they have done it in ways we cannot understand. Even engineers who build these apps cannot fully explain their behavior. This raises mind-boggling questions. As the technology advances, we might soon cross some threshold beyond which using AI requires a leap of faith. Sure, we humans can't always explain our thought processes either, but we find ways to intuitively trust and engage people. Will that also be possible with machines that think and make decisions differently from the way a human would? We've never before built machines that operate in ways their creators don't understand. How well can we expect to communicate and get along with intelligent machines that could be unpredictable and inscrutable? Questions took me on a journey to the bleeding edge research on AI algorithms from Google to Apple and many places in between, including a meeting with one of the greatest philosophers of our time. In 2015, a research group at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York was inspired to apply deep learning to the hospital's vast database of patient records. The data set figures hundreds of variables on patients drawn from their test results, doctor visits, and so on. The resulting program, which the researchers named Deep Patient, was trained using data from about 700,000 individuals. And when tested on new records, it proved incredibly good at predicting disease. Without any expert instruction, Deep Patient had discovered hidden patterns in the hospital data that seemed to indicate when people were on their way to a wide range of ailments, including cancer of the liver. There are a lot of methods that are pretty good at predicting disease from a patient's record, says Joel Dudley, who leads the Mount Sinai team. But he adds, this was just way better. At the same time, deep patient is a bit puzzling. It appears to anticipate the onset of psychiatric disorders like schizophrenia surprisingly well. But since schizophrenia is notoriously difficult for physicians to predict, Dudley wondered how this was possible. He still doesn't know. The new tool offers no clue as to how it does this. 
If something like deep patient is actually going to help doctors, it will ideally give them the rationale for its prediction to assure them that it isn't accurate and to justify, say, a change in the drug someone is being prescribed. We can build these models, Dudley says ruefully, but we just don't know how they work. Artificial intelligence hasn't always been this way. From the onset, there were two schools of thought regarding how understandable or explainable AI ought to be. Many thought it made sense to made the most sense to build machines that reasoned according to rules and logic, making their inner workings transparent to anyone who cared to examine some code. Others felt that intelligence would more easily emerge if machines took inspiration from biology and learned by observing and experiencing. This meant turning computer programming on its head. Instead of a program writing the commands to solve a problem, the program generates its own algorithm based on example data and a desired output. The machine learning techniques that would later evolve into today's most powerful AI systems followed the latter path. The machine essentially programs itself. At first, this approach was limited and of limited practical use, and in the 1960s and 70s, it remained largely confined to the fringes of the field. Then the computerization of many industries and the emergence of large data sets renewed interest and inspired the development of more powerful machine learning techniques, especially new versions of one known one known as the artificial neural network. By the 1990s, neural networks could automatically digitize handwritten characters, but it was not until the start of the decade, after several clever tweaks and refinements that the very large or deep neural networks demonstrated dramatic improvements in automated perception. Deep learning is responsible for today's explosion of AI. It has given computers extraordinary powers like the ability to recognize spoken words almost as well as a person could a skill too complex to code into the machine by hand. Deep learning has transformed computer vision and dramatically improved machine translation. It is now being used to guide all sorts of key decisions in medicine, finance, manufacturing, and beyond. The workings of any machine technology are inherently more opaque, even to computer scientists, than a hand-coded system. <clears throat> I'm sorry, uh, I'm losing my voice. There's a lot of stuff to read in this. This is not to say that the future of AI techniques will be equally unknowable, but by its nature, deep learning is a particularly dark black box. You can't just look inside a deep neural network and see how it works. A network's reasoning is embedded in the behavior of thousands of simulated neurons arranged into dozens or even hundreds of intricately interconnected layers. The neurons in the first layer receive an input, like the intensity of a pixel in an image, and then a platform and perform a calculation before outputting a new signal. These outputs are fed in a complex web to the neurons in the next layer and so on until an overall output is produced. Plus there's a process known as backpropagation that tweaks the calculations of individual neurons in a way that lets the network learn to produce a desired output. <sighs> the many layers in a deep network enable it to recognize things at different levels of abstraction. In a system designed to recognize dogs, for instance, the lower layers recognize the simple things like outlines or color. Higher layers recognize more complex stuff like fur or eyes, and the topmost layer identifies it all as a dog. The same approach can be applied, roughly speaking, to other inputs that lead a machine to teach itself. The sounds that make up words in speech, the letters and words that create sentences in text, or the steering wheel movements required for driving. Ingenious strategies have been used to try and capture and thus explain in more detail what's happening in such systems. In 2015, researchers at Google modified a deep learning-based image recognition algorithm so that instead of spotting objects in photos, it would generate or modify them. 
By effectively running the algorithm in reverse, they could discover the features that the program uses to recognize, say, a bird or a building. The resulting images, which are fucking nightmare fuel, produced by, produced by a project called Deep Dream, which is some freaky shit if you've ever seen the Deep Dream stuff, um, showed grotesque alien-like animals emerging from clouds and plants in hallucinatory pagodas blooming across forests and mountain ranges. The images proved that deep learning need not be entirely inscrutable. They revealed that the algorithms hone in on familiar visual features like a bird's beak or feathers. The images also hinted at how different deep learning is from human perception and that it might make something out of an artifact that we would know to ignore. Google, Google's researchers noted that when the algorithm generated images of a dumbbell, it also generated a human arm holding it. The machine had concluded that the arm was part of the thing. Further progress has been made using ideas borrowed from neuroscience and cognitive science. A team led by Jeff Kuhn, an assistant professor at the University of Wyoming, has employed the AI equivalent of optical illusions to test deep neural networks. In 2015, Kuhn's group showed how certain images could fool such a network into perceiving things that aren't there because the images exploit low-level patterns that the system searches for. One of Kloon's collaborators, Jason Yanowski, also built a tool that acts like a probe stuck into a brain. This tool targets any neuron in the middle of a network and searches for an image that activates it the most. The images that turn up are abstract, image and imprint, uh, okay, highlighting the mysterious nature of the machine's perpetual abilities. We need more than a glimpse of AI's thinking, however, and there is no easy solution. In the interplay of calculations inside a deep neural network that is crucial to higher level pattern recognition and complex decision making, but those calculations are a quagmire of mathematical functions and variables. If you had a very small neural network, you might be able to understand it, Nicola says, but once it becomes very large and has thousands of units per layer, maybe hundreds of layers, then it becomes ununderstandable. In the office next to Chicola is Regina Baisley, an MIT professor who is determined to apply machine learning to medicine. She was diagnosed with breast cancer a couple years ago at age 43. The diagnosis was shocking in itself, but Baisley was also determined that dismayed that cutting edge statistical machine learning methods were not being used to help with oncological research or to guide patient treatment. She says AI has huge potential to revolutionize medicine, but realizing that potential would mean going beyond just medical records. She envisages using more of the raw data that she says is currently underutilized. Imaging data, pathology data, all this information. After she finished her cancer treatment last year, Basley and her students began working with doctors at M. Massachusetts General Hospital to develop a system capable of mining pathology reports to identify patients with specific clinical characteristics that researchers might want to study. However, however Basley understood that the system would need to explain its reasoning. So together with Jacola and a student, she added the step. She adds a step. The system extracts and highlights snippets of text that are representative of a pattern it discovered. Baisley and her students are developing a deep learning algorithm capable of finding early signs of breast cancer mammogram images, and they aim to give the system the same ability to explain its reasoning too. You really need to have a loop where the machine and the human collaborate, Baisley says. The U.S. military is pouring billions into projects that will use machine learning to pilot vehicles and aircraft, identify targets, and help analysts sift through huge piles of intelligence data. Here, more than anywhere else, even more than in medicine, there's little room for algorithmic mystery, and the Department of Defense has identified explainably as a key stumbling block. David Gunnering, 
a program manager at Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, that is DARPA folks, is overseeing the aptly named Explainable Artificial Intelligence Program. A silver-haired veteran of the agency who previously oversaw the DARPA project that eventually led to the creation of Surrey, Guttering says that automation is creeping into countless areas of the military. Intelligence analysts are testing machine learning as a way of identifying patterns and vast amounts of surveillance data. Many autonomous ground vehicles and aircraft are being developed and tested, but soldiers probably won't feel comfortable in a robotic tank that doesn't explain itself to them, and analysts will be reluctant to act on information without such reasoning. It is often the nature of machine learning systems that they produce a lot of false alarms, so an internal analyst really needs extra help to understand why a recommendation was made. This March, Dopper chose 13 projects from academia and industry for funding under Gunnering's program. Some of them could build on work led by Carlos Gustrin, a professor at the University of Washington. He and his colleagues have developed a way for machine learning systems to provide a rationale for their outputs. Essentially, under this method, a computer automatically finds a few examples from a data set and serves them up with a short explanation. A system designed to classify an email message as coming from a terrorist, for example, might use many millions of messages in its training and decision making. But using the Washington team approach, it could highlight certain keywords found in the message, like yellow cake. Gooderstein's group has also devised ways for an image recognition system to hint at the reasoning by highlighting certain parts of an image that were most significant. One drawback to this approach, and others like it, such as Bazelay's, is that the explanations provided will always be simplified, meaning some vital information may be lost along the way. We haven't achieved the whole dream, which is where AI has a conversation with you and it is able to explain, Gunnarstein said. We're a long way from having truly interpretable AI. It doesn't have to be a high-stakes situation like cancer diagnosis or military maneuvers for this to become an issue. Knowing AI's reasoning is also going to be crucial for the technology if it's to become a common and useful part of daily lives. Tom Gruber, who leads the Surrey team at Apple, says explainability is a key consideration for his team as he tries to make Surrey smarter and a more capable virtual assistant. Gruber wouldn't discuss specific plans for Surrey's future, but it's easy to imagine that if you receive a restaurant recommendation from Surrey, you'll want to know what the reasoning was. Russians... Ruslan, <laughs> very. Don't ask me. <laughs> oh my god! Okay, Mr. Ruslan, Rus, Rus, Ruslan Vlad Tudonov. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I butchered your name, sir. Director of AI research at Apple and an associate professor at Carnegie Mellon University sees explainability as the core of the evolving relationship between humans and intelligence machines. It's going to introduce trust, he said. Just as many aspects of human behavior are impossible to explain in detail, perhaps it won't be possible for AI to explain everything it does. Even if somebody can give you a reasonable sounding explanation for his or her actions, it's probably incomplete, and the same could very well be true of AI, says Clune of the University of Wyoming. It might just be part of the nature of intelligence that only a part of it is exposed to rational explanation. Some of it is just instinctual or subconscious or inscrutable. If that's so, then at some stage, we may simply have to trust AI's judgment or do without using it. Likewise, that judgment will have to incorporate social intelligence. Just as society is built upon a contract of expected behavior, we will need to design AI systems that respect and fit with our social norms. If we are to be able to create robot tanks and other killing machines, it is an 
it is important that their decision-making be consistent with our ethical judgments. To probe these metaphysical concepts, I went to Tufts University to meet with Daniel Dennett, our now philosopher and cognitive scientist who studies consciousness in the mind. A chapter of Dennett's latest book, From Bacteria to Bach and Back, an encyclopedic treatise on consciousness, suggests that a natural part of the evolution of intelligence itself is the creation of systems capable of performing tasks that creators do not know how to do. The question is, what accommodations do we have to make to do this wisely? What standards do we demand of them and of ourselves? He tells me in his cluttered office on the university's idyllic campus. He also has a word of warning about the quest for explainability. I think by all means, if we're going to use these things and rely on them, then let's get a firm grip on how and why they're giving us these answers as possible, he said. But since there is no perfect answer, we should be cautious of AI's explanations as we are of each other's. No matter how clever a machine seems, if it can't do better than us at explaining what it's doing, he says, then don't trust it. 42. Hmm. <laughs> what, yeah. Um, machine learning is yeah, highly interesting and understanding and why it does this things. This was the nicest, sanest <laughs> story of the bunch. Um, if, if this doesn't have you thinking about the Terminator movies, <laughs> uh, really need to listen to it again. There, yeah. There's so much spooky shit in there. I, I don't even know where to start. Well, I mean, that actually, actually wasn't bad, but go ahead. Yeah. Um, machine learning, um, when is an interesting to topic. The doctor is able to say, well, you need this antibiotic because mm -hmm. this Blah, 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 blah. There's an explanation to it. If okay. a machine can't explain these things, um, what happens if you have a machine that slips a cog? You aren't. You aren't. Machines are going to make mistakes. Human beings make mistakes, right? This, this is... This is part of the problem. If there, you don't expect it to make mistakes, you're deluding yourself. They're going to. They're going to. Yeah. They talk about cancer now just to throw medicine out there. And they talk about women with breast cancer. Um, it's so overdiagnosed that if they see a cluster of cells, two or three cells that may be changed the way it looks, they go and they pull that out of you. Where yes. in years past, they maybe didn't see it or they knew it was an artifact. They knew to dismiss it. How much kind of, how much surgery do you think is going to happen when we let AI loose in medicine? If we just let the doctors take the machine's recommendations without any sort of reason. Um, and Barry, you were talking about why machine learning was interesting. Um, well, yeah, it's good because machines... A lot of people are scared by the fact that the machines are learning for I themselves, but that's because. You can't hear very. No. Margot can't hear you. Um, do you want no. to go out and come back in? Yeah. Okay. We'll be here. He's just chatting about. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, very. The thing they forgot about when they started on machine learning, you you need machine teaching as well. Not a machine teaching a machine. But you but need to be teaching the machine. You need to be molding the way it learns, basically. Because mm -hmm. that helps 
give you an understanding of what it's doing when it starts doing things. Right. Um, and that's a lot harder. Um, machine learning's hard anyway, since humans don't even know how they think, right. let alone how the machine's doing it. Right, but I know, I know that my thinking is enough, maybe not like yours, but it's human enough that I understand it. Whereas, like, I don't understand the thinking of Jeffrey Dahmer, right? That's someone I, I automatically say that's that's inhuman. That person is inhuman. I share nothing in common with them. Um, most humans, I can understand why they think, what they think, and I can trust or distrust them based on that. With the machine, I have no idea how it thinks. And with the images from Google Deep Dream, I'm kind of freaking scared of how they think. <laughs> they get really focused. They, they're hyper-focused like on a pattern. Um, if you've ever had the Rorschach test, which I've had a couple of times, I've had my IQ tested um, many times, so I've taken the Rorschach test a lot. I get like that. I focus on some little thing in the corner that looks like a, a rabbit eating a leaf of lettuce, um, where I'm not seeing the whole big picture. And the machines do that quite a lot, just judging by what's going on with Deep Dream. And I'm by no means an expert here. I just know I've been studying this stuff for years, and I know what scares me. Margo, are you back? Can you hear Barry? Yep. Barry, say something. Yep. Hello, Margo. <laughs> Can you hear me? Can you hear me? All right. Okay, we're back on track. Do you want to pick one, Barry? you want to pick a story? Ooh. Yeah, I know there's so much good stuff, it's just hard to pick <laughs> in there. It's just like a basket of fun this evening. They're all large as well, which doesn't help. Um, um, yeah. Go with AI advances, I think. Um, okay, well, then after we do advances, I want to talk about what happens if something goes wrong with your algorithms at work. Um, okay, so... Elon Musk. Yeah, there's a lot of Elon Musk in here. <laughs> um, let's take an in-depth look at current advances in artificial intelligence. Okay. <clears throat> artificial intelligence is one of the most prominent technologies currently being advanced. Not only is it a hot topic for researchers, but the world's greatest technological minds are fearful of its potential. Bill Gates, Stephen Hawking, Elon Musk, Hundreds of the world's top minds have signed papers stating their fears about the destructive potential of AI systems. Regardless of the top minds in opposition, advances in the industry continue. Integrated AI systems today are already helping us get through daily life, according to Wired. Surrey, Alexa, and all the other virtual assistants in our world are just the tip of the iceberg to what the future may hold. It's an exciting time in the world of programming, in technology and in simply just in the universe what the hell that person needs an editor ai could also lead to an age of rapid exploration and discovery it could also lead to an age reminiscent of the terminator series <laughs> as we seek to, as we seek to understand the future of artificial intelligence let's begin to understand the current advances in the industry by taking an extensive look ai mastered the world's hardest game in January of 2016, an AI system beat the world's best player of the game Go. If you've never heard of the game Go, then you most likely don't grasp the magnitude of this achievement. 
There are more potential moves in the game than there are atoms in the entire universe. This is a game that is so complex that the world's top minds thought that only humans would ever be able to master it. But now a computer has. The computer wasn't programmed to beat the game either. It was programmed to learn how to beat the game. Through positive reinforcement from the programmers, it taught itself how to win. Beating a Go expert is one of AI's most profound achievements of the century. It can be likened to when a computer first mastered the game of chess. Playing games is one thing. Saving human lives is another. Artificial intelligence saves lives. We can't talk about AI without discussing Tesla's autopilot system. While the system has been highly controversial in the media, it is no doubt saving millions of drivers' lives indirectly and some even directly. According to a report from the U.S. National Safety Council, the death rate for driving is 1.3 deaths per 100 million miles driven. For autonomous systems, they have currently driven 130 million miles with only one confirmed fatality. This presents an improvement over regular driving, but more data will need to be garnered to understand just how much. In a more direct sense, Tesla's autopilot system is credited with saving a man's life, according to Tech Republic. A man was driving home from work in Springfield, Missouri, when he began having a constriction in his chest. Tesla's autopilot system helped him get almost entirely to the hospital. Joshua Neely, the man whose life was saved, credits the AI system with saving his life. Predicting the U.S. election. The last U.S. election cycle was one of the craziest in recent history. While most of the media predicted a Clinton win, there was one AI system that predicted Trump would take the presidency. That AI system is called MOGIA, has predicted the last four elections correctly, according to CNBC. The system was created in 2004 by Sejev Rai. It has gotten smarter progressively over the last decade and a half, aggressively analyzing more complexities in social media engagement data. This AI system essentially gathers all the engagement data from across the web and compiles it. By doing this, the AI system can understand true voter sentiment without the mask many put up during election time. It predicts the election based on engagement numbers and it hasn't been wrong yet. Growth of AI in industry. Stepping back from the specific view of AI projects that have advanced the state of technology, we can now look at how AI is evolving as a trend. According to Bloomberg Technology, Google has ramped up the number of projects it undertakes involving AI in recent years by massive numbers. In 2012, they only had about 100 projects involving AI. In 2015, that number was just over 2,700. Technology industry giants aren't the only ones who are adopted in artificial intelligence technology. Startups are basing business models around their capability. Prominently, tech startups are being founded with the sole purpose of using AI to collect big data and analytics for companies. Startups are also using AI to create widely available personal assistants like X.AI. AI programs can even write news articles now thanks to a few companies pioneering in that field. In some senses, there isn't a piece of new technology today that wasn't created or influenced by AI, and the field is only in its relative adolescence. Technology driving AI innovation. We're posed with a technological aspect to AI development in quantum computing that we've never seen before, and an ethical problem of robot rights through refinement of AI ability. This ethical problem is something we need to keep in mind moving through technology. 
regardless of your current opinion, future generations will need to answer at what point technological innovation gains its own rights respectively. With some background out of the way, let's dive into what is quite possibly the most exciting aspect of AI technology, quantum computing. Quantum computing. To explain it simply, quantum computing presents the opportunity for a computer to function with bits in a state of superposition. In other words, computers wouldn't be limited to the one or zero states, but they could exist in both states simultaneously. The dilemma with practical quantum computing is that while superposition can exist on a quantum level, as soon as we observe the state of data or read it, it is seen in either a one or a zero state. So what companies like Google, Intel, and NASA have done is create quantum computers that can operate in superposition to perform operations, then convert, convert the highly complex data into a quantum read level into a binary read level. This allows for complex operations to be completed at rapid speeds while still outputting answers in readable data structures. According to Science Alert, Google's quantum computer is 100 million times faster than your computer. This is a big deal for AI. While artificial intelligence programs have been developed without the use of quantum computing, added super processing power will greatly accelerate AI's expanded function. Google and other top technology companies are greatly interested in applying quantum computing to machine learning applications. They state that this is because many tasks in this area resolve, rely on solving hard optimization problems or performing efficient sampling. Solving problems of optimization is exactly what AI is. It's also exactly what quantum computers are good at. The two respective industries were almost made for each other. Cloud computing. Cloud computing has exploded in recent years and its capacities have significantly impacted the technology industry. You have huge industry leading companies like Autodesk switching to cloud computing for all consumers. Google making supercomputing infrastructure available to anyone. Cloud presence, a great computing power to the everyday worker. On a level more attuned to artificial intelligence, cloud computing can supply the processing power needed to run AI programs. It's very likely that for the beginning, large AI applications yet to be developed, processing speeds and power will be the limiting factor. Cloud computing does is make computing power a service, not a product. In essence, adopting cloud computing allows one central specialized company to undertake the hardware services of the computing industry. They manage all of the equipment, the upgrades, the storage, and all you have to do is pay a small fee to get access to some computer power. The cloud keeps the small guys or even the big guys from having to purchase and maintain hardware and allows them access to unimaginable power. The cloud can not only facilitate expansive AI programs to run on rather mediocre devices, but it will open the playing field to who can advance the state of artificial intelligence according to CIO. While everyone has access to the computing power needed to drive innovation, technological minds aren't limited by the company they work for or any selective opportunities provided to them. In summary, cloud infrastructure being laid right now is the framework for future AI programs. Generative algorithms. One of the biggest misconceptions about artificial intelligence is that it will never be smarter than us because we created it wrong, wrong, so wrong. The problem is we aren't creating AI and the AI programs of the future will only be fluffers of human inspired design. Generative algorithms are behind this and they are changing everything about how we write programs. Generative design is perhaps a more exciting technology than AI. It will be a technological capacity that allows rapid advancement of AI knowledge in a very short amount of time. 
a generative algorithm is exactly what it sounds like. It is an algorithm that is programmed to generate code and create programs. The programmer, in theory, doesn't have to write millions of lines of code that may be needed to create AI systems. They only have to create the relatively shorter generative algorithms that will write the code for the AI program. This isn't some far off technology either. Generative algorithms are already being put to very practical use. Generative algorithms are designing highly technical parts for machines. They're designing art, writing music. They're creating things on par with pure creative human expression, according to OpenAI. This is a hard concept to grasp, but technology has enabled generatively programmed creative expression. Down this avenue, you can begin to see how robots might become, robot rights might become an issue in the future. Fears surrounding AI. Now that we've begun to understand some of the accelerators that are driving artificial intelligence, we need to understand the aura around the technology given off by technological leaders. I'll quote myself here from another article examining the issue. Stephen Hawking, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, and about 100 other leading scientists and engineers believe that artificial intelligence could be more dangerous than nuclear weapons. Elon Musk specifically also believes that AI, AI is the biggest existential threat to humanity's existence ever. The world's top minds have some pretty strong opinions about the potential that artificial intelligence holds. While these minds have these opinions, they aren't necessarily stressing that we should avoid AI altogether, but rather that we be really, really careful. These top minds worry that AI will advance so far that we will allow it to make decisions for us, according to Wired. Stephen Hawking is very concerned that humanity will give AI too much freedom, but he isn't concerned that AI will be all bad. The idea of giving AI too much freedom stems back to the main concern from the tech industry. Leaders are worried about irresponsible handling and understanding of what will be the most powerful technology humans have ever created. It's ahead for the AI industry. It's hard to wade through the predictions for AI and separate hype from actual possibility. The future for industry is no doubt bright and it is set to revolutionize how many of our daily processes are undertaken. China is currently looking to expand into AI research and technology rather than simply being a producer and copier of Western innovation, according to MIT Technology Review. This would allow for an even more accelerated pace towards future implementation of AI into everyday life. Since this implementation, many believe that language learning algorithms will be at the forefront of commercial AI. The ability to use a phone or an earpiece to translate spoken language in real time will be one of the most powerful achievements in recent history. Waverly Labs has already done this with their pilot earpiece system, but it still has some kinks to work out. AI implementation would be significant to language translation because it could do all the fine processing needed around spoken language rapidly. In essence, an AI program would be able to listen to someone talking in one language and spit back the words in your chosen language. It would be able to avoid the somewhat funny literal translation of many translation programs and handle contextual references and understandings. Industry leaders believe positively reinforced machine learning will also play a bigger role in future development. This is much like how the AlphaGo robot learned to beat the game Go. Programmers and engineers are expected to improve how we positively reinforce AI programs, much like how we teach kids. Improving the feedback loop would give even simple AI programs to learn complex things. Lastly, Leaders predict that AI's ability to predict the future will significantly improve in the coming years. We've already seen glimpses of this in the AI programs that predicted the U.S. election. Circling back to positive feedback, as it gets more elections right, it will find its algorithms to near perfection. 
predictive algorithms already being used in autopilot systems for cars to prevent accidents. AI systems can predict the future by communicating with us, thinking just a step ahead to imagine what we want next. These processes and abilities are expected to be refined to a point that, frankly, will seem like pure magic. Artificial intelligence is both something to be entirely afraid of and something to be massively excited about in the years to come. AI and its respective technologies are going to bring in the robot age of technological achievement. Exciting times are ahead. Very go ahead. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, the as as I said before, when they're teaching AlphaGo to right. play Go, mm -hmm. yeah, they taught it. They use systems to teach it. Right. Um, Margot will be back. Go ahead. That's that's the key thing. Okay. Um, and it was mentioned there. The technology people who are worried by it have also said, we're not against it, we just need to be careful. And that's it. It's about, you need to shape okay. it. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, we haven't even gotten to the neural lace technology yet, which gives me the heebies. But <laughs> we will. We're, we're going to get there. It's it's a short ride, folks. Um, But I said I wanted to talk about what will happen when we have problems with computers. And this was written for companies that use AI extensively. So this is just a list of what happens when computer algorithms have problems. So this is like an important concept in there. We've talked about great things. We haven't talked about the military yet. We'll get there. We haven't talked about any of the other stuff, the neural lace. There's like hundreds of other things we could talk about with AI that, and they're all like, that shittingly terrifying. <clears throat> what will happen when your company's algorithms go wrong? When you're ready to incorporate artificial intelligence technologies in your business, the analysis you should perform is this. What can possibly go wrong? What is our product or service expected to do? What happens if it fails to do so? Do we have a damage mitigation plan? Consider the embarrassing situation that Microsoft found itself in with its Tay chatbot fiasco where internet trolls exploited vulnerabilities in the bot's code, feeding it racist, homophobic, and sexist content that millions read on social media. Accidents, including deadly ones caused by software or industrial robots, can be traced to the early days of such technology, but they are not necessarily caused by the systems themselves. AI failures, on the other hand, are directly related to the mistakes produced by the intelligence such systems are designed to exhibit. We can broadly classify such failures into mistakes made during the learning phase and mistakes made during performance phase. A system can fail to learn what its designers want it to learn and might instead learn a different but correlated function. A frequently cited example is a computer vision system that the U.S. Army had hoped to use to automatically detect camouflaged enemy tanks. The system was supposed to classify pictures of tanks but instead learned to distinguish the backgrounds of such images. Other examples include problems caused by poorly designed functions that will reward AIs for only partially desirable behaviors, such as pausing a game to avoid losing or repeatedly touching a soccer ball to get credit for possession. It can help to look at some recent examples of AI failure 
to better understand what problems are likely to arise and what you can do to prevent them, or at least to clean up quickly after a failure. Consider these examples of AI failures from the past few years. 2015, an automated email reply generator creates inappropriate responses such as writing, I love you, to a business colleague. 2015, a robot for grabbing auto parts grabbed and killed a man. 2015, image tagging software classified black people as gorillas. 2015, medical AI classified patients with asthma as having a lower risk of dying from pneumonia. 2015, adult content filtering software failed to remove inappropriate content, exposing children to violent and sexual content. 2016, AI designed to predict recidivism acted racist. 2016, an AI agent exploited a reward signal to win a game without actually completing the game. 2016, video game NPC, non-player characters or any other character that's not controlled by a human player, designated, I'm sorry, designed unauthorized super weapons. Nice. 2016, AI judged a beauty contest and rated dark-skinned contestants lower. 2016, a mall security robot collided with a child and injured it. 2016, the AI AlphaGo lost to a human in a world championship level game of Go. Well, it also learned to beat that human, but that's, we talked about that earlier. 2016, a self-driving car had a deadly accident. And every day, consumers experience more common shortcomings of AI. Spam filters block important emails. GPS provides faulty directions. Machine translations corrupt the meaning of phrases. Autocorrect replaces a desired word with a wrong word. Biometric systems misrecognize people. Transcription fa software fails to capture what is being said. Overall, it's harder to find examples of AI that don't fail. Analyzing the list of AI's failures above, we can arrive at a simple generalization. An AI designed to do X will eventually fail to do X. While it may seem trivial, it is a powerful generalization tool which can be used to predict, predict future failures of AIs. For example, looking at cutting edge and current future AIs, we can predict AI doctors will misdiagnose some patients in a way a real doctor would not. Video description software will misunderstand movie plots. Software for generating jokes will occasionally fail to make them funny. Sarcasm detection software will confuse sarcastic and sincere statements. Employee screening software will be systematically biased and thus hire low performers. The Mars Robot Explorer will misjudge its environment and fall into a crater. Tax preparation software will miss important deductions or make inappropriate ones. What should you learn from the above examples and analysis? Failures will happen. It's inevitable. But we can still put our best practices in place, such as controlling user input into the system and limiting learning to verified data inputs, checking for racial, gender, age, and other common biases in your algorithms, explicitly analyzing how your software can fail, and then providing a safety mechanism for each possible failure, having a less smart backup product or service available, having a communications plan in place to address the media in case of an embarrassing failure, hint, start with an apology. I predict that both the frequency and seriousness of AI failures will steadily increase as AI has become more capable. The failures of today's narrow domains of AI are just the tip of the iceberg. Once we develop general artificial intelligence capable of cross-domain performance, embarrassment will be the least of our concerns. Anybody can go. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> again, the hint is you need to keep an eye on them. But mm -hmm. I do love how people like the person who wrote this article, 
concentrating on, oh, it's going to make mistakes. And it's well, like, it is. they but, still I mean, make less mistakes than humans do. But we're we're prepared for human cock-ups. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? We're prepared for that. We're not prepared for having Tay, you know, spit out racist and homophobic bullshit as a chatbot. Which well, she yeah, never should have been as on was supervised. Said in the story, She's like it a was child. She, to do that. Right, but she <laughs> never should have been left unsupervised. Yes. That that was that was the first failure. And then maybe that's the one thing we can do is not leave this stuff unsupervised. Yeah. Well, you, uh, like said, you wouldn't leave a child unsupervised. Well, I mean, essentially, right now they're in their childhood, and yeah. essentially, a lot of the stuff we don't know about because what we know about um, is about ten to twenty years behind the times, and and this is true. Um, there's an article from the Baltimore Sun, right, and it talks about the movie Enemy of the State with Will Smith, and you can't find this online anymore. I wish you could. But he talked about going to the CIA and seeing all their technology. And then he leaves and he talks about like fiber optic cameras that fit on a toothpick and, you know, micro dots that go in clothing and, and stuff that we're just starting to see now. And as he's leaving, the agent tells him, of course, we didn't show you any of the tech that we have access to. We showed you stuff that's about 20 years old. So the AI that we're being exposed to is older i think i think there's newer better ai out there that's untested um margo you got anything on this <laughs> i'm scared <laughs> uh, I, I, you know ahead. if if a person makes a mistake most of the time i make a mistake i almost know immediately oops that was a boo-boo Mm -hmm. And you can immediately do something to correct it. Right. I don't see any evidence that the machines are going to have that ability. Um, and on top of that, what kind of boo-boos are they going to make? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it's like I said, they're like children. It's, it's like leaving a child alone. It's not something you would do normally, right? especially no. if you you know i have a cat who's um he's a sweetheart but he's basically a window licker right he he's really he's special needs it took him a long time to learn to sit up and and to do things so i don't like to leave him unsupervised you know what i mean i don't like to leave him alone um yep. but he's slowly learning and coming around i'm still uncomfortable with leaving him alone i won't leave him alone even as an, even as an adult really and he's become very dependent on me i I do think sort of the relationship the people who create AI are going to have to have with it is going to have to be like a parent with a special needs child, especially with this newer stuff that we don't know and can't explain, you know, because a parent would usually catch a child's mistakes or at least explain to them what they did wrong. Something see, and that's created it. something that's is going to have an easier time with that than you or I. Go ahead. And that's it exactly. A, a parent would be there and able to interpret that the child made a mistake um, because they kind of understand what the child's going through. How is the babysitter going yeah. to be able to approach this when they don't understand how the AI got to that process to begin with? 
Yeah, I mean, and that's that's kind of the thing. I mean, we know they have the ability to be smarter than us, to compute mathematics at a level that we are incapable of with our, our brains. And we that's know- fine. But right. at least we understand that part of it where I start getting into my fear factor is when it's doing something that nobody can understand, not even the machine. You're going to find a lot of that. You, I, I can't explain how my brain functions. I know it doesn't function right. I know, I, I used to make a joke and say, I can talk to the machines. Um, I have a really good ability to write a, a search query that any search engine will pick up what I want. And when I don't get it at first, I just go back until I get it. And I've always been like that with machines. I've always thought they were less smart than me. And it's not that they're less smart than me. It's that they're differently smart than me. And where do you get to that bridge? And that bridge actually, uh, Elon Musk has a scary idea. Doesn't he very? Elon Musk has lots of scary ideas, but yeah, yeah. Th- there's there's one that you're going to talk about, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I've yeah, I am going to talk about it. Okay, so here's why I'm scared. Musk is preparing to release brain hacking tech, and he's not alone. <laughs> Making a new kind of human. The age of the machine is well underway, and there is a very good chance that humanity will be left behind. Artificial intelligence is beating us at poker, it's beating us at go, it's saving lives by identifying diseases when human doctors fail, it's running our grocery stores and doing a piss poor job, it's driving our cars, AI is even making other AI. Soon, very soon, our computers will surpass us in every skill imaginable. This fact concerns a number of individuals as artificial intelligence is predicted to outpace humanity at an unprecedented rate. That's the singularity that we're talking about, which may result in AI looking at us as nothing more than house pets or maybe even doing away with us entirely. This fear has pushed Elon Musk to suggest something rather unconventional and almost, almost controversial. This fucker thinks this is almost controversial. (laughs) The neural lace. In short, the neural lace is a device that is intended to grow with your brain. Its primary purpose is to optimize mental output through a computer brain interface, allowing the human brain to effortlessly access the internet and thus keep up with and sometimes merge with artificially intelligent systems. Musk asserts that the neural lace could push our cognitive performance to levels that are comparable to that of AI. He has teased his updates before, and now we may finally be getting to something solid. The race to beat AI. However, Musk isn't the only one working to ensure that humanity can keep up with AI. Braintree founder Brian Johnson is investing $100 million to make a neuroprosthesis to unlock the power of the human brain and ultimately make our neural code programmable. Johnson outlines the purpose of his work, stating that it's all about co-evolution. Our connection with our new creators of intelligence is limited by screens, keyboards, gestural interfaces, and voice commands, constrained with input slash output modalities, and very little access to our own brains. 
limiting our ability to co-evolve with silicon-based machines in powerful ways. He's working to change this and ensure that we have a seamless interface with our technologies and our AI. Yet Johnson's company, Kernel, wants to do more than allow humans to interact with machines. His neuroprosthesis is intended to repair our cognitive abilities, which will allow it to combat neurological diseases such as Alzheimer's, ALS, Parkinson's, and other conditions that destroy our brains and our lives. This is just the beginning. Such advances could allow us to literally program our neural code, which would allow us to transform ourselves in ways we can't even imagine. We could literally program ourselves into the people that we want to be. It sounds like something out of science fiction, but it was based on remarkable scientific work. In short, the device is under development by replicating the way our brain cells communicate with one another. The tech envisioned is based on 15 years of academic research that was funded by the National Institutes for Health, shocker, and DARPA. Second time they've come up in this. So get ready. Human superintelligence is only a matter of time. Stay the fuck out of my brain. Do you know how hard that's going to be to... We talked about computers as children, and, and this is what I think of, of AI and, and computing now. I mean, it might be smarter than me, but it's, it's in its infancy or its adolescence. So it doesn't have as much life experience as I do. And I think of it having a childlike quality. You give every fucker a neural lace, it's going to be exposed to stuff that it quite frankly should never be exposed to. Right. Yeah. I trust me. I trust you. I trust very. Um, I don't like the fact that it'll know how to make certain kind of explosives just by reading Barry's mind. <laughs> if we all go and get neural laces. Um, <laughs> but there's, you know, I read the anarchist cookbook too. I've got a lot of fucked up shit in my head as well that I don't think a computer should be exposed to. And my problem with the neural lace is it's going to connect us to computers, but it's going to also connect us to each other. Um, I've done a lot more research into neural lacing that I wanted to go into here, but we will become, we are Borg. If you remember from Star Trek. Oh yeah. Yeah. We are Borg. You will be assimilated. Resistance is futile. I have a problem with that. I, yeah. I, I'm an individual. I like my freedom. I don't like the idea that someone else could be in my head or I could be in someone else's head. I don't want that. There you, shouldn't be, be, you shouldn't be hugely surprised since most I'm of not, the technology Musk comes up with seems to have come from Star Trek. Star Trek. Um, yeah. Musk scares me. Elon Musk he's an idiot. scares me. I don't know that he's an idiot. I mean, I think he's a Oh, no, he is an guy, idiot. I, I'm just saying, I think he's smart, but... No, he's, he's not smart. smart. The people he's he pays smart are smart. He's smart scare me you know his just his ideas are fucked up and you know he talked about the reason he wants to go to mars and i don't know if anybody's seen any interviews with him i mean he, he's a very intellectual person that doesn't make it but i guess like you said that doesn't tend to make him smart at least not in any way that's recognizable to anybody in here but um and there's a difference between smart and intelligent right um he started deciding to go to Mars because he said, if AI ever gets out of control, at least humanity will have a place to run. Now, what you don't understand <laughs> is the kind of shit DARPA's doing, the NIH is doing, the Army is doing, the Navy is doing, all of these government subcontractors are doing. There's no running from that. No. That's coming. That's coming. 
you can't run. There's no running from it. So in a way, I understand what the neural lace is supposed to do. I don't want to be some giant supercomputer's great pet. And it wouldn't be a giant supercomputer. But it might not look like us. It might look like a peacock. Um, it, you don't know. If we're going to give them the power to design themselves, God knows what they're going to look like. A big blue crystal, starfish, who the hell knows? I don't want to be a pet. And I hope no. I'm not alive to see it. Very. Yeah, it's the <clears throat> it's the the full connection thing. Um, mm -hmm. I don't want that. Yeah, people, most people, um, mm -hmm. <laughs> apart from certain crazy people, um, <laughs> cr crave their individuality. Um, in many ways. I mean, people like being part of a group, but there's a difference mm -hmm. between being part of a group and being the group. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And that's the difference. Uh, it is. How do you know when your thoughts begin and someone else's Yeah, I mean, Musk's stuff's insane. The Kernel mm -hmm. Project's much more interesting, much right. more carefully designed, mm -hmm. and might actually be something to aim for. I mean, but as 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 I say, Musk, he he spouts so much crap, <laughs> right? Everybody goes on about how oh all these great innovations, uh, yeah, that other people have done right. for him. Uh, all the ideas he's come up with himself, none of them have actually gone anywhere. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I, the the I, the hyper the hyperlink the yeah. The high-speed train. Yeah, that's yeah. never going to work. No. That's what I mean, it is. I know. Well, but the other thing is, this is a man who basically says, I'm a libertarian. Okay? If you know anything about Elon Musk, he claims he's a libertarian. No, he isn't. Um, no, he isn't. He takes <laughs> a lot of fucking money from the government. You're definitely not a libertarian if you do that. Nope. He rubs shoulders with the AI crowd. And I'm not talking about the little AI crowd. I'm talking like the World Bank AI crowd. The Mark Zuckerberg. And did anybody see Zuckerberg's manifesto? I'm just throwing that out there. Because no. Zuckerberg wants Facebook to be like um, the hub of global governance. It's it's, it's some truly batshit bat crazy. Oh my god pants shittingly terrifying stuff. These people have, they've just got some whacked ideas. So somebody who associates with these people, the IMF people, the World Bank people, um, we talked a little bit about Davos, Davos Forum. Um, and I started researching AI because of Davos Forum. I've watched them for a few years i've watched the live streams from davos and almost shit myself for years and years now going what the fuck are they gonna do what the fuck are they gonna do now um they're all really very involved in this all of them are and uh i don't necessarily like where their heads are at put it that way does anybody want to pick one odd So, nope. Um, what, what about the super seals? 
Um, <laughs> since uh, what could, since we're doing since tonight is what could possibly go wrong? Super seals, elite units pursue brain stimulating technologies. See, all of this is part of of AI of becoming cyborgs of, and maybe this is stuff we shouldn't worry about. I mean, we're already at this point, right? At a conference near Washington, D.C. in February, the commander of all Navy Special Operations Units made an unusual request to industry, develop and demonstrate technologies that offer cognitive enhancement capabilities to boost his elite force's mental and physical performance. We plan on using that mission enhancement, where Admiral, Admiral Tim Szymanski said, the performance piece is really critical to the life of our operators. Szymanski expanded on his remarks in a brief interview later, saying he has his eye on a number of technologies, including pharmaceutical aids. But the results of one breakthrough involving direct application of electrical stimulation to the brain particularly have caught his eye. In experiments, people who were watching these screens, their ability to concentrate would fall off in 20 minutes, Szymanski said. But they did studies whereby a little bit of electrical stimulation was applied, and they were able to maintain the same peak performance for 20 hours. Transcranial electrical stimulation was one of the technologies touted by then Defense Secretary Ash Carter in July 2016 as part of his Defense Innovation Unit Experimental or DIUX initiative. Since then, multiple SEAL units have been actively testing the effectiveness on of the technology officials with the Naval Special Warfare Command unit told military.com. Earlier this year, Naval Special Warfare units working with DIUX began a specific cognitive enhancement project with a small group of volunteers to test and evaluate achieving higher performance through the use of neurostimulation technology, Captain Jason Salata, a spokesperson for the command, said in a statement. The elements testing the technology included Naval Special Warfare Development Group, the unit known more popularly as SEAL Team 6. Other teams are also conducting tests, Salata said. He declined to confirm how many operators are participating in the testing or to cite specific findings to date, but there have been positive outcomes so far, he said. Early results show promising signs, he said. Based on this, we are encouraged to continue and are moving forward with our studies. The company that makes the brain-stimulating device, a headset that can be mistaken for a pair of Beats by Dr. Dre headphones, is Halo Neuroscience. And the technology offers not cognitive enhancement, but neuropriming. Chief Technology Officer and company co-founder Brett Wagner told Military.com. Developed for elite athletes, the headset supports purports to work by stimulating the brain to enter a state of hyperelasticity, allowing users to learn better and more efficiently. In physical training, he said, the technology has proven useful in developing explosive power for athletes whose sports require vertical leaps or sudden starts. For operators, the same system could improve shooting performance, Wagner said. Whatever you're training on, as far as a movement-based skill, he said, if you do deep practice and hard repetition, this accelerates the benefit of that. In a study conducted with the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Association, ski jumpers observed a 13% gain in propulsive force and an 11% gain in jump smoothness compared to a control group over four weeks of using the device, according to data promoted by HALO. As testimonials note, marginal improvements can make a big difference for elite athletes, a statement arguably true of special operations as well. For the notoriously hard training and sleep-deprived SEAL community, the device offers greater efficiency in training, allowing operators to train less and see the same results or train at the same level and get a boost in performance. 
they're training at amazingly high level and the amount they can train is actually limited by things like physical recovery, Wagner said. They want to be able to maintain those incredible physical standards as efficiently as possible. This helps them avoid injury. If I was to sum it up, it's kind of all about just training a little bit smarter. Wagner said the number of Halo devices being used by elite units in testing is in the double digits, adding they're being tested at five military installations. Even compared with the athletes the company has previously worked with, he said all the focus and determination of the SEALs is impressive. It was a real learning moment for us about special operations and about the military. It's super impressive just how enormously skilled everybody is, he said. Spend a lot of time thinking about what they do and honing their craft. A lot of what they're interested in is in terms of physical training. They want to build and maintain these amazing physical skills, but to just do as efficiently as possible. Although some experts have warned that the full-term side effects of using neuropriming to improve performance may not be known. Wagner said lab tests have repeatedly proven that the product, which is commercially available in a sport configuration, is safe. But Andrew Hare, CEO of the research firm Heliclase, and an adjunct fellow with the Center for the New American Security, suggested that the question of side effects should be approached more leniently when dealing with troops whose lives are at risk in combat. In the context of medical or pharmaceutical performance aids, such as Mondafil, commonly used by fighter pilots or amphetamines, he said, there has been a significant resistance in the medical community to prescribing them as performance enhancements because of their inherent side effects. The concept is, is that if you're not healing, then no side effects are worth it or acceptable, he said. But when you're sending people into combat situations where their lives are on the line, the ethics are flipped. I think we're actually thinking about ethics all backward in this field because the military has a unique requirement. And it's even more powerful in the special operations field. The most useful performance aids are much lower level than transcranial direct current brain stimulation, Here said. They include things such as performance nutrition, supplements, legal stimulants such as caffeine, and even meditation, which has been proven to improve focus and attention and decrease the effects of not getting enough sleep. In addition to neuropriming, Harris said technologies, including the application of light frequencies and biometric feedback, have been shown to boost performance and cognition. Regardless of the technology or method, he said it's important that the military conduct robust tests and demonstrations on aids to human performance contributing resources to making the warfighter stronger and more resilient the way it did to developing cutting-edge aircraft and gear. really want to test these things in high-end training environments, which could tell you, do these matter in a warfare scenario, he said. We really need to believe that investing in the human makes sense. Zemanski signaled an interest in testing other performance enhancement technologies as well as pharmaceutical aids such as blood testosterone in the future. Blood testosterone, that sounds great. But he said he's approaching the field of enhancements carefully with an eye on side effects and warning operators not to take the first steps on their own. I'm always anxious because I'm a community of risk takers, he said. Guys may want to try experimenting on their own, which is against policy and has to be completely drug tested and those type of things. So I want to do that in a very systematic kind of way. The reason I put that in here is, did you notice he said... We really need to believe that investing in the human makes sense. <laughs> what is he telling you? Well, what? also what Wait. I get from this story is, uh, great, they found a new thing for people to get addicted to. Yes. Yes, very much so. Margot, go ahead. Well, see, and, and 
it's like, first, let's not forget about us all being bored, okay? So this is all going to play into this, too. Have your brain has built-in safety mechanisms is enough. And so now we're going to tell your brain, no, your body is wrong, keep going, and you're just going to get busted up more. There, there are so many things wrong on so many levels with this on just that avenue. Then let's carry it a step further. How many people, especially SEALs, come home with PTSD. Um, how much more intense problems. is that going to yeah. be? The whole thing. And so yeah. how how are they going to deal with that when they're not plugged into this, let me amp your brain up so you kill more effectively machine, and yeah. download you into the consciousness of the rest of the world so that everyone suffers these horrible things you're suffering. When you start looking at all of it networked together <laughs> the way they really want to network it, hot. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, yeah. it's, sorry, you know, I understand and I have the greatest respect and admiration for SEALs. They do a job that is unbelievably difficult. The last thing in the universe I want is to be inside their fucking brain or suffering the effects they have when they aren't doing it anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, when no, they I come agree. home, they come home, they're trying to live a normal life and they're having nightmares about sneaking in and killing people. Um, and these to help them do it better. Well, <laughs> what permanent damage are we actually going to be doing to their brains? And then we're going to share this damage with every other human being on the face of the earth. Um, it, it's, it's just so fucked on so many levels. Sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no. no, it's true. Well, in some ways, this technology is the, the one they're talking about. Halo is a lot more worrying to me than some of the AI stuff because they already know the human brain adapts. You know, people that have had horrific head injuries, like, you know, they yeah. forget how to speak, mm-hmm. but their brain rewires itself, and they learn how to speak again. Now we've got these guys using these machines, mm-hmm. <laughs> and the brain is going to rewire itself if they use it, say, yep. every day, uh, oh, yeah. to change. So basically, you're going to be altering yep. the brain. Mm-hmm. Now, we only basically understand how it works now. Mm-hmm. What chance yes. have we got if they go messing about with it? <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, this is just one aspect of it. I mean, if you look at the singularity community, and they are a community, they're very interested in life extension technologies. They're They're interested in getting rid of death. They do a lot of neurotropic drugs. Some of them take up to 200 pills a day, just different supplements. Um, They're a very unique community. They want to stay alive to see the singularity. This would be something I think they would be interested in. You know? 
and this seems like it's like an only the tip of the iceberg kind of thing. If they're telling a military magazine about this, you know, that I can read and you can read, what other stuff are they really doing? Oh, yeah. Multiply it by a factor of 100, and that's probably where they're actually at. Yeah. Which is frightening to me. Well, you know, Gary, you know what it's like. Yeah. So what they're actually, what they're telling you about and what they're actually doing are two different things. Yeah, it's a uh, film reference, Universal Soldier. Hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> who wants to pick one? It's Vary's turn. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> See, if um, you're, if if anybody isn't married to anything, can the, you see the what I man becomes immortal. Look. Okay. Twenty forty-five. Okay. Since you kind of talked about it a bit there. Okay. Um, Kurzweil. Hmm. Okay, this is a story from Time Magazine in 2011. This was one of the first things I ever read about the singularity. So here we go. 2045, the year man becomes immortal. On February 15th, 1965, a different but self-possessed high school student named Raymond Kurzweil appeared as a guest on a game show called I've Got a Secret. He was introduced by the host, Steve Allen. Then he played a short musical composition on a piano. The idea was that Kurzweil was hiding an unusual fact, and the panelists, they included a comedian and a former Miss America, had to guess what it was. On the show, the beauty queen did a good job of grilling Kurzweil, but the comedian got the win. The music was composed by a computer, and Kurzweil got $200. Kurzweil then demonstrated the computer, which he built himself, a desk-sized affair with a loudly clacking relay, hooked up to a typewriter. The panelists were pretty blasé about it. They were more impressed by Kurzweil's age than anything he'd actually done. Then they were ready to move on to Mrs. Chesterlani of Rowan Ready, California, whose secret was that she had been President Lyndon Johnson's first grade teacher. But Kurzweil would spend much of the rest of his career working out what his demonstration meant. Creating a work of art is one of those activities we reserve for humans and humans only. It is an act of self-expression. You're not supposed to be able to do it if you don't have a self. To see creativity, the exclusive domain of humans, usurped by a computer built by a 17-year-old, is to watch a line blur that cannot be unblurred, the line between organic intelligence and artificial intelligence. That was Kurzweil's real secret, and back in 1965, nobody guessed it. Maybe not even him, not yet, but now 46 years later, Kurzweil, this was written in 2011, believes that we're approaching a moment when computers will become intelligent, and not just intelligent, but more intelligent than humans. When that happens, humanity, our bodies, our minds, our civilization, will be completely and irreversibly transformed. He believes that this moment is not only inevitable, but imminent. According to his calculations, the end of human civilization as we know it is about 35 years away. Computers are getting faster. Everyone knows that. Also, computers are getting faster, faster. That is the rate that which they're getting faster at is increasing. True? True. So if computers are getting so much faster, so incredibly fast, there might conceivably become a moment when they're capable of something comparable to human intelligence. Artificial intelligence. All that horsepower could be put in service of emulating whatever it is our brains are doing when they create consciousness. Not just doing arithmetic very quickly or composing piano music, but also driving cars, writing books, making ethical decisions, appreciating fancy paintings, making witty observations at cocktail parties. 
If you can swallow that idea, and Kurzweil and a lot of very other smart people can, then all bets are off. From that point on, there's no reason to think that computers would stop getting more powerful. They would keep on developing until they were far more intelligent than we are. The rate of development would also continue to increase because they would take over their own development from their slower thinking human creators. Imagine a computer scientist that was itself a super intelligent computer. It would work incredibly quickly. It would draw on huge amounts of data effortlessly. It wouldn't even take breaks to play Farmville. This is how you can tell how old the story is. Probably. It's impossible to predict the behavior of these smarter than human intelligences with, with, with whom we might one day share the planet. Because if you could, you'd be as smart as they would be. But there are a lot of theories about it. Maybe we'll merge with them to become super intelligent cyborgs using computers to extend our intellectual abilities the same way that cars and planes extend our physical abilities. Maybe the artificial intelligences will help us treat the effects of old age and prolong our lifespans indefinitely. Maybe we'll scan our consciousness into computers and live inside them as software, forever, virtually. Maybe the computers will turn on humanity and annihilate us. Yeah. The one thing that all these theories have in common is the transformation of our species into something that is no longer recognizable as such to humanity, circa 2011. This transformation, transformation has a name, the singularity. The difficult thing to keep sight of when you're talking about the singularity is that even though it sounds like science fiction, it isn't. No more than a weather forecast is science fiction. It's not a fringe idea. It's a serious hypothesis about the future of life on Earth. There's an intelligent gag reflex that kicks in anytime you try to swallow an idea that involves a super intelligent immortal cyborg. Let's suppress it if you can, because while the singularity appears to be, on the face of it, preposterous, it's an idea that rewards sober, careful evaluation. People are spending a lot of money trying to understand it. The three-year-old Singularity University, which offers interdisciplinary courses for graduate students and executives, is hosted by NASA. Google was a founding co-sponsor. Its CEO and co-founder, Larry Page, spoke there last year. People are attached to the singularity for the shock value. Like an intellectual freak show, they stay because there's so much more to it than they expected. And of course, in the event that it turns out to be real, it will be the most important thing ever to happen to human beings since the invention of language. The singularity isn't a wholly new idea, just newish. In 1965, the British mathematician I.J. Good described something he called an intelligence explosion. Let an ultra-intelligent machine be defined as a machine that can far surpass all intellectual activities of any man, however clever. Since the design of machines is one of the intellectual activities, an ultra-intelligent machine could design even better machines. There would then unquestionably be an intelligence explosion, and even the intelligence of man would be left far behind. Thus, the first ultra-intelligent machine is the last invention that man ever need make. The word singularity is borrowed from astrophysics. It refers to a point in space-time, for example, inside a black hole, at which the rules of ordinary physics do not apply. In the late 1980s, the science fiction novelist Werner Vinge attached it to Good's intelligence explosion scenario. At a NASA symposium in 1993, Vinge announced that within 30 years, we will have the technology means create superhuman intelligence. Shortly after that, the human era will be ended. By the time Kurzweil was thinking about the singularity too, he had been busy since his appearance on I've Got a Secret. He'd made several fortunes as an engineer and inventor. He founded then sold his first software company while he was still at MIT. He went on to build the first print to 
print-to-speech reading machine for the blind. Stevie Wonder was customer number one, and he made innovations in a range of technical fields, including music synthesizers and speech recognition. He owns 39 patents and 19 honorary doctorates. In 1999, President Bill Clinton awarded him the National Medal of Technology. But Kurzweil was also pursuing a parallel career as a futurist. He had been publishing his thoughts about the future of human and machine kind for 20 years, most recently in Singularity is Near, which was a bestseller when it came out in 2005. A documentary by the same name starring Kurzweil, Tony Robbins, and Alan Dershowitz, among many others, was released in January. Kurzweil is actually the subject of two current documentaries. The other one, less authorized but more informative, is called The Transcendence Man. Bill Gates has called him the best person I know at predicting the future of artificial intelligence. In real life, the transcendent man is an unimposing figure who could pass for Woody Allen's even nerdier younger brother. Kurzweil grew up in Queens, New York, and you can still hear a trace of it in his voice. Now at 62, he speaks with the soft, almost hypnotic calm of someone who gives 60 public lectures a year. As the singularity's most visible champion, he's heard all the questions and face down incredulity many, many times before. He's good-natured about it. His manner is almost apologetic. I wish I could bring you less exciting news of the future, but I've looked at the numbers, and this is what they say, so what else can I tell you? Kurzweil's interest in humanity's cyberborg destiny began about 1980, largely as a practical matter. He needed ways to measure and track the pace of technological process. Even great inventions can fail if they arrive before their time, and he wanted to make sure that when he released his, the timing was right. Even at that time, technology was moving quickly enough that the world was going to be different by the time you finished a project, he said. So it's like skeet shooting. You can't shoot at the target. You know about Moore's Law, of course, which states that the number of transistors you can put on a microchip doubles about every two years. It's a surprisingly reliable rule of thumb. Kurzweil tried plotting a slightly different curve. The change over time in the amount of computing power measured in MIPS, millions of instructions per second, that you can buy for $1,000. As it turned out, Kurzweil's numbers looked a lot like Moore's. They doubled every couple of years. Thrown as graphs, they both made exponential curves with their value increasing by multiples of two instead of by regular increments in a straight line. The curves held eerily steady, even when Kurzweil extended his backwards to the decades of pre-transistor computing technologies like relays and vacuum tubes all the way to the 1900s. Carswell then ran the numbers on a whole bunch of other technology indexes. The falling cost of manufacturing transistors, the rising clock speed of microprocessors, the plummeting price of dynamic RAM. He looked even further afield at trends in biotech and beyond, the falling cost of sequencing DNA and of wireless data service, and the rising numbers of internet hosts and nanotechnology patients, patents. He kept finding the same thing, exponentially accelerating progress. It's nearly amazing how smooth these trajectories are, he says. Through thick and thin, war and peace, boom times, and recessions, Kurzweil calls it the law of accelerating returns. Technological process happens exponentially, not, liter not literally. Then he extended the curves into the future, and the growth they predicted was so phenomenal, it created cognitive resistance in the mind. Exponential curves start slowly, then rocket skyward towards infinity. According to Kurzweil, we're not involved we're not evolved to think in terms of exponential growth towards infinity. It's not intuitive. Our built-in processes are linear. When we're trying to avoid an animal, we pick the linear prediction of where it's going to be in 20 seconds and what to do about it. 
that is actually hardwired in our brains. Here's what the exponential curve told him. We will successfully reverse engineer the brain by the mid-2020s. By the end of that decade, computers will be capable of human-level intelligence. Kurzweil puts the date of the singularity, never say he's not conservative, at 2045. In that year, he estimates, given the vast increases in computing power and the vast reduction in the cost of same, the quality of artificial intelligence created will be about a billion times the sum of all in human intelligence that exists today. The singularity isn't just an idea. It attracts people, and those people feel a bond with one another. Together, they form a movement, a subculture. Kurzweil calls it a community. Once you decide to take the singularity seriously, you will find that you have become part of a small but intense and globally distributed hive of like-minded thinkers known as singularians. Not all of them are Kurzweilians, not by a long chalk. There's room inside the singularianism for considerable diversity of opinion about what the singularity means and when or how it will or won't happen. But singularians share a worldview. They think in terms of deep time. They believe in the power of technology to shape history. They have little interest in the conventional wisdom about anything, and they cannot believe you're walking around living your life and watching TV as if the artificial intelligence revolution were not about to erupt and change absolutely everything. They have no fear of sounding ridiculous. Your ordinary citizen's distaste for apparent absurd ideas is just an example of a rational bias, and singularians have no truck with irrationality. When you enter their mind space, you pass through an extreme gradient and worldview, hard ontological sheer that separates singularians from the common run of humanity. Back to expect turbulence. In addition to the Singularity University, which Kurzweil co-founded, there's also a Singularity Institute for Artificial Intelligence based in San Francisco. It counts among its, its advisors, Peter Thiel. Oh, what a great guy he is. So oh, PayPal is anonymous, except for when I feed all your information to the government. Um, Peter Thiel Institute for Artificial Intelligence based in San Francisco. Um, um, okay, a former CEO of PayPal and early investor in Facebook. The Institute holds an annual conference called the Singularity Summit. Kurzweil co-founded that too because of the highly interdisciplinary nature of singularity theory and attracts a diverse crowd. Artificial intelligence is the interdisciplinary nature of singularity theory. Um, okay, uh, main event, but okay. Artificial intelligence is the main event, but the sessions also cover the galloping progress of, among other fields, genetics and nanotechnology. At the 2010 summit, which took place in August in San Francisco, there were not just computer scientists, but also psychologists, neuroscientists, nanotechnologists, molecular biologists, a specialist in wearable computers, a professor of emergency medicine, an expert on cognition in great parrots, and the professional magician and debunker James the Amazing Randy. The atmosphere was a curious blend of Davos and UFO convention. Proponents of the seasteading, the practice so far mostly theoretical, of establishing politically autonomous floating communities in international waters handed out pamphlets. An android chatted with visitors in one corner. After artificial intelligence, the most talked about topic at the 2010 summit was life extension. Biological boundaries that most people think of as permanent and inevitable, singularians see as merely intractable but solvable problems. Death is one of them. Old age is an illness like any other, and what do you do with an illness? You cure, you cure them. Like a nod of other singularian ideas. It sounds funny at first, but the closer you get to it, the less funny it seems. It's not just wishful thinking. There's actual science going on here. For example, 
It is well known that one cause of physical degeneration is, ex is associated with aging that involves telomeres, which are segments of DNA found at the end of chromosomes. Every time a cell divides, its telomeres get shorter, and once the cell runs out of telomeres, it can't reproduce anymore and dies. But there's an enzyme called telomase that reverses this process. It's one of the reasons cancer cells live so long. So why not treat regular non-cancer cells with telomase? In November, researchers at Harvard Medical School announced in Nature that they had done just that. They administered telomase to a group of mice suffering from age-related degeneration. The damage went away. The mice didn't get better. They got younger. Aubrey de Grey is one of the world's most best-known life extension researchers and a Singularity Summit veteran. British biologist with a doctorate from Cambridge and a famously formidable beard, DeGray runs a foundation called SENS, or Strategy for Engineered Negligible Sentience. He views aging as a process of accumulating damage, which he has divided into seven categories, each of which he hopes to one day address using regenerative medicine. People have begun to realize the view of aging being something immutable, rather like a heat death of the universe, is simply ridiculous, he says. It's just childish. The human body is a machine that has a bunch of functions, and it accumulates various types of damage as a side effect of the normal function of the machine. Therefore, in principle, that damage can be repaired periodically. This is why we have vintage cars. It's really just a matter of paying attention. The whole of medicine consists of messing about with what looks pretty inevitable until you figure out how to make it not inevitable. Kurzweil takes life extension seriously, too. His father, with whom he was very close, died of heart disease at 58. Kurzweil inherited his father's genetic predisposition. He also developed type 2 diabetes when he was 35. Working with Terry Grossman, a doctor who specializes in longevity medicine, Kurzweil published two books on his own approach to life extension, which involves taking up to 200 pills and supplements a day. He says his diabetes is essentially cured and Although he's 62 from a chronological perspective, he estimates his biological age is about 20 years younger. But his goal differs slightly from DeGray's. For Kurzweil, it's not so much about staying healthy as long as possible. It's about staying alive until the singularity. It's an attempted handoff. Once hyperintelligence, artificial intelligence arises, armed with advanced nanotechnology, they'll really be able to wrestle with the vastly complex systemic problems associated with aging in humans. Alternatively, by then we'll also be able to transfer our minds to sturdier vessels, such as computers and robots. And many other singularians take seriously the proposition that many people who are alive today will wind up being functionally immortal. It's an idea that's radical and ancient at the same time. In Sailing to Byzantium, W.B. Yeats describes mankind's fleshly predicament as a soul fastened to a dying animal. Why not unfasten it and fasten it to an immortal robot instead? Kurzweil finds that life extension produces even more resistance in his audience than exponential growth curves. There are people who can accept computers being more intelligent than people. But the idea of significant changes to human longevity, that seems to be particularly controversial. People invested a lot of personal effort into certain philosophies dealing with the issue of life and death. I mean, that's the major reason we have religion. Of course, a lot of people think singularity is nonsense, a fantasy, wishful thinking. A Silicon Valley version of the evangelical story of the rapture spun by a man who earns his living making outrageous claims and backing them up with pseudoscience. Most of the serious critics focus on the question of whether a computer can truly become intelligent. 
The entire field of artificial intelligence, or AI, is devoted to this question. But AI doesn't currently produce the kind of intelligence we associate with humans, or even with talking computers and movies, HAL, or CP3O, or data, or data. <clears throat> Actual AIs tend to be able to master only one highly specific domain, like interpreting search queries or playing chess. They operate within an extremely specific time of reference. They don't make conversations at parties. They're intelligent, but only if you define intelligence in a vanishingly narrow way. The kind of intelligence Kurzweil is talking about, which is called strong AI or artificial general intelligence, doesn't exist yet. Why not? Obviously, we're still waiting on all that exponential growing computer power to get here, but it's also po possible there are things going on in our brains that can't be duplicated electronically, no matter how MIPS you throw at them. The neurochemical architecture that generates the epidural chaos we now know as human consciousness may just be too complex and analog to recreate in digital silicon. Although biological components act in ways that are comparable to an electronic circuit, he argued in a talk titled What Cells Can Do That Robots Can't, they are set apart by huge numbers of different states that they can adopt. Multiple biochemical processes create chemical modifications of protein molecules further diversified by association with distinct structures that define locations of a cell. The resulting combinational explosion of states endows living systems with an almost infinite capacity to store information regarding past and present conditions and a unique capacity to prepare for future events. That makes the ones and zeros that computers trade in look pretty crude. Underlying the practical challenges are a host of philosophical ones. Suppose we did create a computer that talked and acted in a way that was indistinguishable from a human being. In other words, a computer that could pass the Turing test. Very loosely speaking, such a computer would be able to pass as human in a blind test. Would that mean that the computer was sentient, the way a human being is? Or would it just be an extremely sophisticated, but essentially mechanical automaton without the mysterious spark of consciousness, a machine with no ghost in it? And how would we know? Even if you grant that the singularity is plausible, you're still staring at a thicket of unanswerable questions. If I can scan my consciousness into a computer, am I still me? What are the geopolitics and socioeconomics of the singularity? Who decides who gets to be immortal? Who draws the line between sentient and non-sentient? And as we approach immortality, omniscience, and omnipotence, will our lives still have meaning? By beating death, will we have lost our essential humanity? Kurzweil admits there is a fundamental level of risk associated with the singularity that's impossible to refine away, simply because we don't know what highly advanced artificial intelligence, finding itself a newly created inhabitant of the planet Earth, would choose to do. It's not like competing with us for resources. It, it might not feel like competing with us for resources. One of the goals of the Singularity Institute is to make sure that not just that artificial intelligence develops, but also that the AI is friendly. You don't have to be a super intelligent cyborg to understand that introducing a superior life form into your own biosphere is a basic Darwinian error. If the singularity is coming, these questions are going to get answers, whether we like it or not. And Kurzweil thinks they're trying to put off the singularity by banning technologies is not only impossible, but also unethical and possibly dangerous. It would require a totalitarian system to implement such a ban, he said. It wouldn't work. It would just drive these technologies underground. Responsible scientists who were counting on to create defenses would not have easy access to the tools. Kurzweil is an almost inhumanly patient and thorough debater. He relishes it. 
He tireless in hunting down his critics so he can respond to them point by point, carefully in detail. Gave the question of whether computers can replicate the biochemical complexity of an organic brain. Kurzweil yields no ground there whatsoever. He does not see any fundamental difference between flesh and silicon that would prevent the latter from thinking. He defies biologists to come up with a neurological mechanism that cannot be modeled at, modeled or at least matched in power and flexibility by software running on a computer. He refuses to fall on his knees before the mystery of the human brain. Generally speaking, he says, the core of disagreement I'll have with the critic is they'll say, oh, Kurzweil is underestimating the complexity of reverse engineering of the human brain or the complexity of biology. And I don't believe I'm underestimating the challenge. I think they're underestimating the power of exponential growth. This position doesn't make Kurzweil an outlier, at least among singularians. Plenty of people make more extreme predictions. Since 2005, the neuroscientist Henry Markham has been running an ambitious initiative called the Brain Mind Institute of the Echo Polytechnic in Lausanne, Switzerland, called the Blue Brain Project, and it's an attempt to create a neuron-by-neuron -neuron simulation of a mammalian brain using IBM's Blue Gene supercomputer. So far, Markham's team has managed to simulate one neocortical column from a rat's brain, which contains about what 10,000 neurons Markham has even says he hopes to have a complete virtual human brain up and running in 10 years even Kurzweil sniffs at this if it worked he points out you'd think they'd have to educate in the brain and who knows how long that would take by definition the future beyond the singularity is not knowable by our linear chemical animal brains but Kurzweil is teeming with theories about it he positively flogs himself to think bigger and bigger and you can see him kicking against the confines of his aging organic hardware. When people look at the implications of ongoing exponential growth, it gets harder and harder to accept. So you get the people who really accept, yes, things are progressing exponentially, but they fall off the horse at some point because the implications are too fantastic. I've tried to push myself to really look. This just goes, mm, okay. We can scan our consciousness into computers and enter a virtual existence or swap our bodies for immortal robots and light out for the edges of space as intergalactic godlings. Within a matter of centuries, human intelligence will have re-engineered and saturated all matter in the universe. That is, Kurzweil believes, our destiny as a species. Or it isn't. When the big questions get answered, a lot of the action will happen where no one can see it. Deep inside the black box silicon brains of computers, which will either bloom bit by bit into conscious minds, or just, continue, uh, or just continue into more brilliant and powerful iterations of non-sentience. But as for the minor questions, they're already being decided around us and in plain sight. The more you read about the singularity, the more you start seeing it peeking out at you, coyly from unexpected directions. Five years ago, we didn't have 600 million humans carrying out their social lives over a single electronic network. And we have Facebook. Five years ago, you didn't see people double-checking what they were saying and where they were going, even as they were saying it and going there using a handheld network-enabled digital prosthesis, and we have iPhones. Is it an unimaginable step to take the iPhones out of our hands and put them into our skulls? Already, 30,000 patients with Parkinson's disease have neural implants. Google is experimenting with computers that can drive cars. There are more than 2,000 robots fighting in Afghanistan alongside human troops. This month, the game show will once again figure in the history of artificial intelligence. But this time, the computer will be the guest. An IBM supercomputer nicknamed Watson will compete on Jeopardy. 
wants and runs on 90 server and, and takes up an entire room in, in a practice match in January, it finished ahead of two former champions, Ken Jennings and Brad Ruder. He got every question and answered right, but much more important, he didn't need help understanding the questions or strictly speaking the answers, which were phrased in plain English. Watson isn't strong AI, but if strong AI happens, it will arrive gradually, bit by bit, and this will have been one of the bits. A hundred years from now, Kurzweil and DeGray and the others could be the 22nd century's answer to the Founding Fathers, except unlike the Founding Fathers, they'll still be alive to get credit. Or their ideas could look as hilariously retro and dated as Disney's Tomorrowland. Nothing gets old as fast as the future. But even if they're dead wrong about the future, they're right about the present. They're taking the long view and looking at the big picture. You may reject every specific article of the Singularian Charter, but you should admire Kurzweil for taking the future seriously. Singularianism is grounded in the idea that change is real, and that humanity is in charge of its own fate, and that history might not be as simple as one damn thing after another. Kurzweil likes to point out your average cell phone is about a millionth the size of a millionth price of and a thousand times more powerful than the computer he had at MIT 40 years ago. Flip that forward 40 years. And what does that world look like? If you really want to figure that out, you have to think very far outside the box. Or maybe you have to think further inside the box than anyone ever has before. Anyone? Yeah, well, there's not really a lot you can say. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, this this was the first thing I read after I started watching stuff happening at Davos. And I've been watching the shit at Davos for five years. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's sensible people, as well, sensible thinkers, should I say, all kind of agree the singularity or something similar is going to happen. It's coming, yeah. It's how it happens. And how we control it happening—that's that's where the interest lies, really. My interest is my primary interest in this, and I'm probably the only person who has the fucking primary interest in this that's like this at all. Um, my primary interest is in if if we're doing the neural lace or the neural prosthesis or whatever, right? Because we don't we I don't think we you know unlike Jane's addiction, I don't think we'd make great pets. Um, I want my privacy. I don't want somebody, something, another human, a machine, in my head. You know what I mean? There has to be some privacy boundaries. The government exactly. can already spoke on, spy on me, um, look at what I'm reading and, and writing, um, there's algorithms that predict what I'm going to write better than I'm going to know myself. That's a problem. I don't want this stuff inside my head. There's stuff in there that deserves to stay locked away in a little box, you know, like Dexter's blood slides, <laughs> um, <laughs> that doesn't need to be shared with the world. Well, and my... you know, there were, Go ahead. there were two things that popped into my head on this one. You know, if I could be healthy and mm -hmm. live 20 years longer, I don't have a problem with that. Mm -hmm. What the actual fuck to live to be a million years old? I, I, don't, I don't want that either, but you don't know what choice you'd make in the future. 
I don't know what choice I'd make in the future. You know what I mean? And you know, people donate their bodies to science all the time. What if they download your consciousness into a machine when you die and you have no say over it? You don't know. See, that's not right. No, Um, but you think that wouldn't happen? But you know, and here was my other thing that crossed my mind through all of this. Every bit of this technology some source of power, correct? Mm-hmm. Like you have to have electricity or when you turn the light on, the bulb won't work. Matrix. Human beings, all modern conveniences, would a bunch of people die? Yeah. Would there be some people that still survived and could carry on? You betcha. Mm-hmm. Um, so... What would happen if every person was sucked into this? Catastrophic happened to the power source. Well, you saw the matrix. I saw the matrix. I have the matrix. Yeah, human beings are a great power source. I don't want to be someone's pet. And I don't want to be hooked into the machines. You know, what, what choice does that leave me? And if... I have to ask you what happens with the environment, right? I'm not a huge exactly. environment. I'm not a huge environmentalist, but you know, I like clean places to go play and and hunt and fish. <clears throat> what happens when technology goes that far, right? I mean, is anybody who's a singularian even involved in environmental causes at all? Would that be integrated into our supercomputer matrix or no i mean i find that possibility quite disturbing because we know what happens when you know business gets large you know environmental concerns get thrown to the side i I don't know i have a lot of issues and questions and i'm not easy i'm not having an easy time with the future i don't like how it looks okay i'm picking one and hopefully it's kind of short because we're at like 8.38 now. Computers can now read your emotions. Here's why that's not as scary as it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> emotions critically influence all aspects of our lives from how we work, learn, and play to the decisions we make, big and small. Emotions drive how we communicate and interconnect with each other and impact our health and well-being. Human emotional intelligence, or your EQ, is the ability to recognize in not only our own emotions, but also those of other people, and to use emotions to guide our behavior, adapt to different environments, and achieve our goals. Humans with high EQ lead more successful professional and personal lives. They are more likable and more persuasive, tend to be more effective leaders, and generally lead healthier and happier and even longer lives. Today, our lives play out in a digital world. We are surrounded by lots of hyper-connected systems, smart devices, and advanced AI, artificial intelligence systems. In other words, lots of IQ, but no EQ. That's a problem, especially as our interactions with technology are becoming more controversial and relational. Just look at how we use our mobile devices to interact with intelligence agents such as Surrey and Amazon's Alexa. These technologies are designed to interact with humans, need emotional intelligence to be effective. Specifically, they need to be able to sense human emotions and then adapt their operation accordingly. This, the, <laughs> this is written by someone from 
the Davos World Economic Forum. This was one of the people I saw speak. My company, Effectiva, is on a mission to humanize technology with an artificial emotional intelligence, or as I like to call it, emotion AI. What is emotion AI? You might know this as emotion recognition technology. Our emotion AI unobtrusively measures facial expressions of emotion. Using just a standard webcam, our technology first identifies human faces in real time or in an image or video. Computer vision algorithms identify key landmarks on the face, for example, the corners of your eyebrows, the tips of your nose, the corners of your mouth. Machine learning algorithms then analyze pixels in those regions to classify facial expressions. Combinations of these facial expressions are then mapped to emotions. Now also using learning, do, now also using deep learning approaches, we can very quickly tune our algorithms for high performance and accuracy. Motion AI uses massive amounts of data. In fact, Effectiva has built the world's largest emotion data repository. We've analyzed more than 5.2 million faces in 75 countries. This is really important because people around the world don't look the same and certainly express emotion differently when they go about their daily business in the wild. In all this data we have gathered, we are seeing very interesting aspects of human emotional behavior. For example, we know women are more expressive than men. Our data not only confirms that, but it also shows women smile more and that their smiles last longer. There are cultural differences. In the U.S., women smile 25% more, in France, 40% more. But curiously, in the U.K., we found no difference between men and women. The Spanish are more expressive than Egyptians, but apparently Egyptians show more positive emotion. We can also detect actions of the polite smile seen in cultures such as Japan. In general, in more collectivist cultures, we see in that group settings, people dampen their emotions, but are very expressive when they are at home alone. In individualistic cultures such as North America and Europe, it's the opposite. People are more expressive in group settings than when they are by themselves. Maybe that's because there are cultural norms that make the individual stand out from the pack. So how is Emotion AI being used? Over 1,400 brands are using our tech to measure and analyze how consumers respond to digital content, such as videos and ads and even TV shows. Emotion data helps companies, brands, and advertisers improve their advertising. Emotion AI also gets integrated into other technologies to make them more emotion aware. Now with our software developer kit, any developer can embed Emotion AI into the apps, games, devices, and digital experiences they're building so that these can sense human emotion and adapt. This approach is rapidly driving more ubiquitous use of Emotion AI across a number of different industries. Robots such as Mabu and Tega are using Emotion AI to understand the moods and expressions of the people they interact with. In education, Emotion AI will understand if a student is frustrated or bored. But what if the learning content would adapt? The Little Dragon Learning app is among the first of such adaptive apps designed to help children learn language in a more interactive and interesting way. Video games are designed to take us on an emotional journey but to not change the gameplay based on the emotions of the player. The Nevermind game changes that all around. This biofeedback thriller game gets more surreal and challenging as players show signs of distress. In healthcare, the impact of Emotion AI can perhaps be the most significant. From drug efficiency testing and telomere, telemedicine, to research in depression, suicide prevention, and autism. The team at BrainPower has built an autism program that is already changing the lives of families with children on the autism spectrum. There are many more examples in automotive, retail, and even the legal industry where emotional recognition technology is in use. 
We recognize that emotions are private and we always want to be transparent about how our technology works and how it's being used. <laughs> in these emotion-aware digital experiences, we want people to have the option to opt out or turn off this emotion-sensing capability. And if these solutions are compelling enough, people will choose to use this and get value out of it. I am often asked what the future holds for motion AI, and my answer is simple. It will be ubiquitous, ingrained in the technologies we use every day, running in the background, making our tech interactions more personalized, relevant, authentic, and interactive. I posted a video yesterday on Facebook called, um, I believe it's called Strange Creatures. And I'm going to grab that and shove it in the chat and tell you, <laughs> I think that's possibly, you could use Emotion AI for that. Um, you would, um, oh, it's called Strange Beasts. So let me grab it for you now. Um, you'll find this interesting. It's about 10 or 12 minutes long, and it's about the use of emotional technology. And people who are listening to this will find it interesting, I think. Um, yeah. So does anybody want to pick a really quick, is there any quick one in there that looks interesting <laughs> to anybody? <laughs> I think you just did the quick one. <laughs> um, I think the one underneath it might be interesting only because it implies that they're going to work together. Did you catch that? Robot speed of light communications could protect you from danger. Um, Ithaca, New York. Cornell University researchers are developing a system to enable teams of robots to share information as they move around and, if necessary, interpret what they see. This would allow robots to conduct surveillance as a single entity with many eyes. Beyond surveillance, the new technology could enable teams of robots to relieve humans of dangerous jobs such as disposing of landmines, cleaning up after a nuclear meltdown, or surveying the damage after a flood or hurricane. Once you have robots that can cooperate, you can do all sorts of things, says Killian Weinerberger, associate professor of computer science who is collaborating on the project with Sevilla Ferrari, professor of mechanical and aerospace engineering, and Mark Campbell, professor of mechanical engineering. Their work, convolution feature analysis and control for mobile visual scene perception, is supported by a four-year, $1.7 million grant from the U.S. Office of Naval Research. The wonderful people that are sticking stuff on our SEAL team that we don't know what we'll do to their brains. The researchers will call on their extensive experience with computer vision to match and combine images of the same area from several cameras, identify objects and track objects and people from place to place. The work will require groundbreaking research because most prior work in the field was focused on analyzing images from just a single camera as it moves around. The new system will fuse information from fixed cameras, mobile observers and outside sources. The mobile observers might include autonomous aircraft and ground vehicles and perhaps humanoid robots wandering through a crowd. They will send their images to a central control unit, which might also have access to other cameras looking at the region of interest, as well as access to the internet for help in labeling what it sees. What makes the car is that? How do you open this container? Identify this person. Now in the context of a scene, robot observers may detect suspicious actors and activities that might otherwise go unnoticed. A person running may be a common occurrence on a college campus, but may require further scrutiny in a secured area. 
Researchers plan early tests on the Cornell campus using research robots to surveil crowded areas while drawing on an overview from existing webcams. This work might lead to incorporation, incorporating the new technology into campus security. In addition to the ONR grant, previous work by the researchers has been supported by the National Science Foundation and the U.S. Department of Energy. So, did you catch that? <laughs> yeah. You got that. Yeah, yeah. So... I mean, it's 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 more uh, spyware, basically. Uh, <laughs> spyware, surprisingly. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, and the story that goes with it is called um, "Robots Could Soon Cooperate on Surveillance." Computers are getting better at sorting objects, but they tend to work in isolation. What good would a security robot be if it couldn't share info about an intruder with other machines? Cornell scientists might have an answer. They're designing a system that would let robots and other autonomous devices cooperate with each other on identifying and tracking objects. Each bot would send imagery to a central unit that would talk to both camera systems and the internet to help identify objects. The group would combine and compare images to follow objects and collect more information about them, getting more data than they would if they did all the work by themselves. For instance, a robot might detect a suspicious person racing through a crowd. The team could follow this person wherever they go using a planning feature to determine which cameras are needed and where robots need to go to get a better look. There's still a lot of work to be done. Cornell has yet to finish a system that it can test, let alone put into service. However, it would likely be useful for far more than building security. The U.S. Office of Naval Research is backing the project, and there's hopes that the Navy could use this to coordinate drones. No matter how it gets used, it's reasonable to say that autonomous won't be lone wolves for too much longer. Hey. So, yes. <laughs> we are legion. This made me feel so good. <laughs> yeah. Well, you really want to feel good? How about uh. this? <laughs> <laughs> Merging our brains with machines won't stop the rise of the robots. Tesla chief executive and OpenAI founder Elon Musk suggested last week that humanity might stave off irrelevance from the rise of machines by merging with the machines and becoming cyborgs. However, current trends in software, only artificial intelligence, and deep learning technology raise serious doubts about the plausibility of this claim, especially in the long term. The doubt is not only due to hardware limitations, but it's also to do with the human brain and uh, the role the human brain would play in the matchup. Musk's thesis is straightforward. That sufficiently advanced interfaces between brain and computer will enable humans to massively augment their capabilities by being better able to leverage technologies such as machine learning and deep learning. But the exchange goes both ways. Brain-machine interfaces may help performance of machine algorithms by having humans fill in the gaps for tasks the algorithms are currently bad at, like making nuanced contextual decisions. The idea in itself is not new. J.C.R. Ledlecker and others speculated on the possibility and implications of manned computer systems in the mid-20th century. However, progress has been slow. One reason is the development of hardware. There's a reason they call it hardware. It's hard, said Tony Fidel, creator of the iPod. And creating hardware that interfaces with organic systems is even harder. Current technologies are primitive compared to the picture of the brain-machine interfaces were sold in science fiction movies such as The Matrix. Deep learning quirks. Assuming that the hardware challenge is eventually solved, there are bigger problems at hand. The past decade of incredible advances in deep learning research has revealed that there are some fundamental challenges to overcome. 
The first is simply that we will still struggle to understand and characterize exactly how these complex neural systems function. We trust simple technology like a calculator because we know it will always do precisely what we want it to do. Errors are almost always a as a result of entry by the fallible human. One vision of the brain-machine augmentation would be to make a superhuman at arithmetic. So instead of pulling out a calculator or smartphone, we could think of a calculation and receive the answer instantaneously from the assistive machine. Where things get tricky is if we try to plug into the more advanced functions offered by machine learning, such as deep learning. Let's say you work in security at an airport and have a brain machine augmentation that automatically scans thousands of faces you see each day and alerts you to possible security risks. Most machine learning systems suffer from an infamous problem whereby a tiny change in appearance of a person or object can cause the system to catastrophically miscalculate what it thinks it's looking at. Change a picture of a person by less than 1% and the machine might suddenly think it's looking at a bicycle. Terrorists or criminals might exploit the different vulnerabilities of a machine to bypass security checks, a problem that already exists in online security. Humans, although limited in their own way, might not be vulnerable to such exploits. Despite their reputation as being unemotional, machine learning technologies also suffer from bias in the same way humans do and can even exhibit racist behavior if fed appropriate data. This unpredictability has major implications for how a human might plug into and more importantly, trust a machine. Trust me, I'm a robot. Trust is also a two-way street. Human thought is a complex, highly dynamic activity. In the same security scenario with sufficiently advanced brain-machine interface, how will the machine know what a human bias is to ignore? After all, unconscious bias is a challenge everyone faces. What if the technology is helping you interview job candidates? We can preview to some extent the issues of trust and brain-machine interface we're looking at how defense forces around the world are trying to address human-machine trust in an increasingly mixed human-autonomous system battlefield. Research into trusted autonomous systems deals with both humans trusting machines and machines trusting humans. There's a parallel between a robot warrior making an ethical decision to ignore an unlawful order by a human and what must happen in a brain-machine interface. Interpretation of the human's thoughts by the machine while filtering fleeting thoughts and deeper unconscious biases. In defense scenarios, the logical roles for the human brain in checking in decisions are ethical. But how will this work when the human brain is plugged into a machine that can make inferences using data at a scale no brain can comprehend? In the long term, this issue is whether and how humans will need to be involved in the processes that are increasingly determined by machines. Soon, machines may make medical decisions no human can possibly fathom. What role can and should the human brain play in this process? In some cases, the combination of autonomation and human workers could increase jobs, but this effect is slightly fleeting. Those same humans, uh, robots, and autonomous systems will continue to improve, likely eventually removing the jobs they created locally. Likewise, the human may initially play a useful role in the brain-machine systems as the technology continues to improve, there may be less of a reason to include humans in the loop at all. The idea of mainstreaming humanity's relevance by integrating human brains with artificial brains is appealing. It is. What remains to be seen is what contribution the human brain will make, especially as technology development outpaces human brain development by a million to one. So, you know, there are people who don't agree with Musk and the other people. Uh, I like those Us. people. Huh. Yeah, so there's that. Just, I think this is just interesting stuff. I mean, it's not stuff we talk about. We usually talk about 
politics and the government, but there's plenty of other scary shit out there. There's stuff that's that might even be scarier than the government, which I never thought I would say. <laughs> you know, I'm going to have nightmares about robots as politicians. Oh, God. <laughs> Robocop. Yeah. There's just the, the advancements that we're making are not necessarily a good idea, I think. And, you know, they're right. Ethically saying you can't do it is just going to force it underground. So you've got to let it happen. But I don't know. It's probably going to be a big Luddite community, I think, at some point. Just a bunch of us and the Amish. <laughs> <laughs> The Amish aren't going to want to get plugged in, you know. They're not. They, I mean, I like Amish. <laughs> I like the Amish people too. Um, you know, they don't vote and they don't drive cars. They don't shun technology. They'll use it. They just don't own it. It's it's very it's very very interesting uh, when you look at the Amish communities, which I've looked at um, just as I've you know looked at this stuff. Um, they do use some technology. They have their own version of something that creates electricity for workshops and stuff. It's, it's right. They're, they're very interesting people, and they have a really interesting way of life. I'm not sure I want to live without mirrors, though. I don't think I <laughs> we like have the a idea couple of, of Amish communities not too far from here. Yeah, well, you know that might be the last enclave of true humanity if the shit goes where you yeah know, these people wanted to go. Yep. So, so I thought. And I, I guess now that we've given you nightmares, Marco. <laughs> Thank you so much. I feel so warm and fuzzy now. <laughs> I guess that's it for the evening. Can you say, is there anything you could possibly say? Any last words, Gary? <laughs> that's about it. Yeah. Or I could go with... <laughs> Yeah, beep, beep, boop. Um, I don't know what I can say. Just, it's out there. These people, they're out there. These people that want this to happen, they're, they're out there. And there's no stopping them. So what happens next? I don't know. But it's probably a good idea to educate yourself about it and get involved on the ground floor before your decision gets taken away from you. And, um, yeah. Yeah. That's it for the evening. We have time for adverts. Should have. And it, yeah, the Muppet music is especially important this evening for poor Margo. She'll need to sue yeah. <laughs> Why do we always come here? I guess we'll never know. It's like a kind of torture to have to watch the show. Why spend hours searching for in-stock ammunition when you can use AmmoSeek.com? AmmoSeek.com is a search engine for finding ammunition, reloading components, magazines, and guns for more than 300 calibers at more than 60 online retailers. AmmoSeek.com only shows items that are in stock and readily available for shipping. You can search by caliber, grains, manufacturer, and more. The results are displayed by cost per round, so you are able to get the very best pricing on your ammunition of choice. Find ammunition at the best prices, fast. Amoseek.com. Good night. We'll see you next Friday. Thanks for listening.